Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. People say motherhood changes you, and I've, I've told friends of mine, non-motherhood changed me because just the appreciation for, you know, it's not tangible. I'll never hold this being physically in my arms. I don't know where she is in the universe. I have no idea. But I feel her presence, and she changed my life. And so, you know, that mystery, the great mystery of death and life, and where do we go when souls leave the planet? Well, nobody knows. And, um, you know, there, there was just a sense of knowing that the songs brought. It's like they brought messages from her to me. So it was incredibly comforting. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on this episode, we're talking about Pandora's Aquarium, the 12th track from Tori's fourth album, From the Choir Girl Hotel. Hey, Eve. We're seeing each other so much more frequently these days. I love it. It's been a good December. Suck it, Counting Crows. It hasn't been long. It's been good. The end of the year and the end of the album. How do you feel about that? I love that we're at track 12 in month 12. There's a beautiful symmetry to it, isn't there? Yeah. How do you feel about it? I feel sad and I feel happy. (laughs) I feel sappy. I feel accomplished that we made it through this album, a beast of an album, a beastess, that we made it through this album in a year, that we took only a year, as opposed to Boys for Pele, which felt like it took five years. I know. Isn't that crazy? I feel like we just got lost in Tordor, and now here we are at the other end of it. (laughs) We've conquered Tordor. Mm, And then it conquered us. Uh Uh-huh. So I feel there's like a beautiful symmetry to finishing the year and finishing the album. And next year, we're going to be devoting the whole year to B-sides, not only Choir Girl B-sides, but Little Earthquakes B-sides. It's going to be a B-side year. 2021, year of the B. I'm going to be beside myself. Mm. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I like that we provide our own laugh track. We have to. No one else will. Applause. How have you been in the last week since we put out Playboy Mommy? I've been pretty good. And just let me tell you, I feel like my moment has come. I'm so ready for this song because I've been numb below the waist for years. So (laughs) I can take whatever you have to throw at me for hours and hours and hours. 
Um, what's been going on in your world? You know, I've just been trying to have a vaguely normal Christmas, which is impossible. But I love tasking myself with the impossible. So it's been going real well. Oh, do you? Yeah. That's why you're such a fit for this show. <laughs> I know. Make it through this gargantuan discography. Try to have a normal holiday season in 2020. Like, I'm up for it. What else you got? Fine. But yeah, it's, it sometimes feels like the impossible journey, no? Yes, <laughs> it does <Yeah>. feel that <laughs> way. <laughs> like, how are we going to get through? How many albums does she have now? 30? 35? I don't freaking know. <laughs> I just had this weird flash. It's not deja vu quite, but it's like I projected us into the future where we're like working on Unrepentant Geraldines or Native Invader finally. And there's now like 15 more albums to go from that point. So Yeah, I realized, oh <laughs> I think I stopped counting around Venus. Like, oh my gosh, remember yeah. when I first got into Tori and she was like a one album artist? She's a up to five can you believe it and now it's like wait yeah. what when i like read a new review when she puts out a new album and i read a review and they're like her 17th studio album and i'm like wait what <laughs> wait, what possible? how did that happen where did the time go honestly how old am i i've just been sailing away on a christmas tide and an orinoco flow <laughs> i don't know where i am what year it is but i like it i love that we're able to make christmas tide jokes that's what tells the future audiences where we're at in the discography like currently mm-hmm. i stopped counting albums when there was the dispute between Strange Little Girls and Scarlet's Walk, which was the sixth album. I'm like, obviously it's Strange Little Girls. It's her sixth album, but it's not her sixth original album. Scarlet's Walk is the sixth. Oh, I remember those disputes back in the forums. Do you remember that? No, thank God I wasn't involved in that. Like I would have lost my mind and we'd probably still be arguing about it. How can you like (laughs) Strange Little Girls is indisputably an album. What else would you call it? It's an album. Right. Oh, God. What's next, people? You want to debate the meaning of love? Do it all you want, but it's a fool's game. It's a fool's <laughs> errand. After love, human existence. Mm. I did what you said to do, David, last week. Since when? For once in my goddamn life. <laughs> I put Playboy Mommy on top of Cher's If I Could Turn Back Time video, and I'm here to report. Did you watch it? Well, I went looking for it, and I couldn't find it. Well, it's exclusive to our Patreon supporters. It's on our patreon only feed oh i don't get to peek behind the paywall <laughs> well you are i mean like you have the feed david you could see it so i'm here to report to the world that playboy mommy the song is the exact same time length as if i could turn back time the video is that true it's 100 percent true <laughs> the only thing i did was i had to trim like a couple seconds off the beginning where there was like a logo noise you know like a logo sound effect mm-hmm. i cut that out and then it fit exactly with the song no joke and the cuts and the beats of the song fit with the cuts in the video and it is truly it's what should have been the video for playboy mommy you have to watch it everybody out there if you're a patreon supporter you have to watch it it's astonishing my mouth is agape i feel like we need to hit pause on this recording session and so i can go watch the video i don't even remember exactly why we made that joke but we were tapped into something it really worked out it really worked out and what's interesting is that share i don't know if you know this little tidbit that i know about share in that video is that the guitarist in that video is her son so it's like her 14 year old son at the time and at one point like while tori's singing playboy mommy she's like cuddling up to her son and like hits him on the side with her butt 
I'm like, ah, oh, that is a Playboy mommy if I've ever seen one. I didn't know that. I yeah. feel like I'm watching pop-up video. What else can you tell me about that if you could turn back time video? <laughs> well, I felt like I learned that fact from a pop-up video. And I feel like I also know that the video was done basically, but they needed to go back into the studio and record Cher's close-up because they needed some filler. So there's like these randomly placed like close-ups of Cher singing that don't feel like native to the video. And that's why. Yeah. Mm, I'll bet that was controversial, kind of like when they went back to Crucify and added shots of Tori playing the piano, not approved by Cindy mm-hmm. Palmano, and she like disavowed her work. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was the first time you heard Pandora Aquarium? I first heard it when I got the album. There were no clips of it, no previews, so I got it the first time I listened to the album all the way through, and I think I was looking forward to it. Well, one, because Tori's final tracks are usually, you know, something to behold in your ears. Mm. And she had also already talked about the fact that this was the first song to come. So I had my seatbelt buckled, ready for something (laughs) special. Yeah, how about you? Same. I mean, I the first time I heard it was when we heard the album for the first time. Not that I was privy to clips in advance, thanks, David. But there were no clips anyway. I loved this song from the get-go. I didn't know that it was the first one to come, I guess, when I got the album. I found that out later. But it was just, there's something so liquid, like water, you know? Like, you feel her in the tropics there with that song. Mm -hmm. And it just is really, yeah, it's really profound, I think, in a musical way. Yeah, I loved it. Obviously, this album marked a shift for Tori, period, in the first three are a trilogy of sorts. But I feel like this, as a final track, leaves you with a very different experience than the first three albums, where you have kind mm-hmm. of like these epic, show-stopping, kind of dramatic songs. And Pandora feels very loose in comparison and languid. It really feels kind of like an epilogue. Have you ever listened to the album in booklet order? I actually don't think I've ever done that. You haven't done that? We have a playlist on Spotify. Find us at the Sideways Society on Spotify. You'll see our From the Choir Girl Hotel booklet order playlist. So Pandora is first. Yeah, and you think it's a beautiful epilogue. It's just as great an album opener. Mm. It's just as great. That intro, you know? I don't know. There's something really great about starting there, too. I guess the album can, even though she didn't necessarily create it to tell a story or to have a narrative, it can come full circle and just like keep cycling. I love it both as a closer and as an opener. Mm. And I have to choose it as a closer, obviously, because it is the closer. But, you know, give it to me as an opener. The end is the beginning is the end. Say it again, David. The end is the beginning is the end. I don't know if you meant it, but I'm doing it. (laughs) No, thank you. You know, I could see this being a good album opener just in terms of subject matter and theme but I have to Mm -hmm. imagine that it didn't open the album sonically because it wouldn't Mm -hmm. make as satisfying an opener but it's kind of this album's horses like it takes you into Mm -hmm. the world of the album like we do the deep dive I see that I see that absolutely like you go somewhere with it Mm -hmm. yeah like you're in you got your little snorkel on and you're just like going further and further down and you're like what's that Ooh, it's a nautical nun hey girl hey girl I can't come back up I'll get the bends yeah (laughs) go on without me I believe that it is a an amazing closer to this album and the reason that it is not a good opener the reason it was probably deselected if that is even if booklet order was the original order track order anyway is that because that pandora at the end is very final and it's like hard to come back from that 
but I think the opening notes are such a beautiful intro. So, mm -hmm. you know, it is what it is. Should we say hello to our Patreon supporters? Yes, we should. First, we'd like to say hello to our new patron, Corey Tice. Ticicle, Ticicle, where are you, Corying? Hello to new patron, Tanya Rigotti. Hi, Tanya. And I'll go wearing my Rigottis like a jewel. Brilliant, David, brilliant. You keep getting better and better at this. Brill. Hello to new patron, Nicholas McDonald. Nicholas said to me. Hello to new patron, Andreas Erickson. Right on, right on, friends of Andreas Erickson. <laughs> Hello to new patron, Amber Brown. She lit me up like Amber Brown. Well, you lit me up like Amber Brown. On Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> It would have been a much better album if that's how she'd written the song. There's still time for the remaster of the anniversary edition. <laughs> she can re-record it. Yeah, a reworked edition. Mm -hmm. And finally, thank you to MM who upped their pledge to our Patreon. You too can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash where we have wonderful thank you gifts. And there's going to be a lot more coming next year because we got something very exciting to announce in the new year. Don't try to open your presents early. Wait till 2021. You don't want any good gifts in 2020. It would be like a wasted good gift. It's like great gift for the shit year. <laughs> Calm down. I got I got passionate. Should we talk about our guests, David? Who's coming into the pool? This season has really been about inviting our closest friends and supporters into our world to tell us their relationship with the songs. On this episode, we have Jared Good, who has a very exciting project that I'm going to make him talk about, but that's not why he's here. He's here to talk about Pandora. Oh, please, twist his arm. We also have Caroline Mann on the show to talk a little bit about the myth of Persephone, which we need. We need to understand that girl. And then finally, we have Barkley Squared. He's one of our newest Patreon supporters, and he has a special relationship with this song that he's going to tell us all about. It's a loaded episode. You got me loaded up with Kurtzweil sounds and guests. Oh my god, I'm loaded. Should we say hello to Shay? Yes. Eve, I think you're confused. I'm not Persephone. <laughs> Line me up in shingle file with all your grievance, Shays. <laughs> Shay dives for shells with her nautical nuns. Shay dives for shells. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good one, of course. Let's play a cover, shall we? Let's get on with this episode. Let's get on with the rest of the album and then the rest of our lives. Let's put in our scuba gear and dive in. Oh my God, I'm scared, David. Me too, hold me. This is a cover of Pandora's Aquarium by Daryl Banner. This is his 16-bit cover. I really like this. Great job, Daryl. We love it. And I think it's perfect to start our show. And we'll link to it in our show notes at songsoftoriamus.com.
as I was reading in the bio, uh, when you were making this album, you were pregnant and you had a miscarriage. That must have been like the hardest thing. How, how could you go on working? I didn't work for a long time. I did, um, I did a special for Rain, um, which is uh, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. It's, um, it's like a hotline for um, survivors of violations. And um, after that, though, I didn't do anything for a while. And you know, you once you once you can't cry anymore, I think what happens is well, what happened to me, anyway, was I still had the connection to the spirit, to this being. And the love didn't go away. And you feel this love that, well, that I, I hadn't, I really hadn't felt that kind of love before for another human being. And my mother's talked to me about it, how she, she feels that as a mom. And... I love my mother very much, I mean, in a huge, deep way. And yet this kind of protective um, love I hadn't experienced before. But it didn't go away, even though this being is not in physical form, and even though it, it might now be, you know, be born to another woman on the planet, or God knows where this being has gone. But... Um, you know, you can't go around to pregnant women start knocking on their bellies and go, Hi, hello, is this my favorite being in there? You can't really, you know, do that. And so there's a gift that um, I feel like this, this being left with me, and that was a sense of love even though there was a physical loss. I've My capacity to feel and feel for other people, um, I think is more than it used to be. Um, I'm, I'm more aware of other people's hurts than I used to be. Pandora's Aquarium is the 12th track from From the Choir Girl Hotel, which was released on May 4th, 1998 in the UK and May 5th, 1998 in the US. Cinco de Pandora. Drums by Matt Chamberlain, bass by George Porter Jr., and Busendorfer and vocals by Tori Amos. Mm, good job, Tori Amos. This is a precursor. This is a foreshadowing of what was to come, maybe not with George Porter, obviously with John Evans, but that sort of jazz trio vibe really is apparent here in the song, just in the fabric of the song. You can really just tell that it's just the three of them working together. Mm-hmm. You just got those crunchy minor seventh chords. It's just really like very jazzy, David. I don't know if you know jazz, but yeah, that's jazz talk. Talk to me more about music theory. Talk to me about crunchy minor yeah. seventh chords. I don't even know if you know what you're saying. <laughs> I do know what I'm saying. And the reason I know what I'm saying, David, is because I am texting with Brian Nash currently. Oh, Good. I thought you were going to say because you went to the Peabody. Because <laughs> I'm trained. But those are even better credentials. You have Brian Nash's home phone? Give me it. It was mobile. I know. Listen to me. Well, we're doing a podcast about an album from 1998. I'm like, what's your landline? What's your home phone? <laughs> I got my rotary dial. This song appears on the album from the Choir Girl Hotel. 
as the 12th track, as we said, and it never shows up again. That's bizarre. She's been trapped in the underworld for forever, for 22 it, years. It is a wasteland. If you go to iTunes and search Pandora's Aquarium by song, it's a wasteland. I'm used to Playboy Mommy. It's on an original boot. It's on a legging boot. Hotel's on a ton of legging boots. It is a wasteland. It's that one entry and that's it. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it. And I don't know what she's thinking. We know she remembers this song exists because she played it at the last show of the last tour so yeah she played it at the last show of the last tour spoiler alert for our live section david (laughs) sorry that was a request from someone in new york that she had stiffed she had stiffed them in new york Mm, she was checking a lot of things off her list at that final show she was like janet jackson who only does medleys she's like i gotta do all the hits alamo pandora's aquarium should we get into the quotes david i know it's a little early but what else is there to do we can't talk about the many versions of the song and the many different appearances yeah we should so before since tori has given us so little i'm gonna give you a lot in the form of a question are you ready i was born ready i love being questioned (laughs) have Have you ever listened to Choir Girl into Ray of Light? I have not listened to Pandora's Aquarium. Is that what you asked? Into Ray of Light? Yeah, or yeah, Choir Girl. Does it work? I haven't done it either, but it just occurred to me during the break when we were listening to the 8-bit version. 16-bit? That I feel like Choir Girl and Ray of Light are kind of sisters. They came out the same year. They both have artists dabbling in electronica, whereas they hadn't before. And they explore different Mm -hmm. aspects of motherhood. And of course, there's the watery Pandora's Aquarium into Drowned World. I just feel like there's something there. No, I completely agree with you. And here's what's interesting is I think that people that weren't around for that era or maybe weren't fans at the time or maybe don't like Madonna or whatever may disagree with you. But at the time, it felt like that Ray of Light album is Madonna's most soulful album is her most, I think, you know, she's writing about being a mother. It's her first album coming back from being a mother. You know, she had taken some time off, had Lourdes, and therefore it's her most soulful album, which brings her into sort of a realm of Tori Amos. So she comes down into the heart and Tori Amos goes up into the atmosphere with the electronica. And so they kind of meet in a way. And I do agree they're very complimentary. I've never listened to them back to back, but I see it. I see it and I agree. Mm hmm. Ask me another question. I like being questioned. Does it have to be about Madonna? No, it has to be about Tori Amos and this album and it's hopefully about this song. <laughs> How many times have you seen Pandora's Aquarium live? Go. I don't know. <laughs> but I did listen to all the live tracks. So it's easy to calculate eventually. Mm. All right, let's get into the quotes. I'm ready. This is from Yahoo Chat, April 13th, 1998. Do you want to be the cute young gay kid behind his computer or do you want to be Tori Amos? Um, I'd like to play myself, please. So yes, cute okay. young gay kid behind his computer (laughs) if you could give just one piece of advice to girls growing up today what would it be for girls and boys study your mythology in that are ancient secrets rites, and mysteries that you probably aren't taught by your teachers and parents in the different mythologies of cultures you begin to see mirrors and possibilities of what might be lurking in your soul some mythologies won't resonate with you so you observe them respect them and move on Once you begin to resonate, it's probably telling you something, a clue to that vastness that is your soul. When people talk about girl power, I think a parallel thought to go with that is woman's wisdom. That is not something you can buy at the store. 
That is by learning from your experiences and being awake enough to not pretend that they never happened. All these little experiences are your diamonds, which becomes your wisdom if you choose. I actually am absolutely in love with that quote. I've never read that quote before. I love that quote. Tell me what you love about it. All these little experiences are your diamonds, which becomes your wisdom if you choose. It's not just about girl power, but it's also about woman's wisdom. It's like the wisdom that you gain, not only from your experience, but your shared experience with others and the experience of others, just the communal knowledge. And if you choose to learn from your mistakes, if you choose to be open to these other ways of thinking and these other stories, the other mythologies, other people's experiences, if you choose to be open to it, you will gain wisdom and you will, by the time you become a woman, that's maybe what makes you a woman, is being able to have this wisdom, this knowledge, and to be able to pass on that wisdom to your daughter, to your young ones. Yeah, I love this. And I love the way she says that. These little experiences are your diamonds, which obviously takes me back to Liquid Diamonds because this is from the time when she's about to release the album. So using the word diamonds is very specific. I mean, this gives me some sort of clue to Liquid Diamonds, right? Yes, I think you're onto something. Especially because this was April 13th, 1998. Obviously the album's about to come out. It's what's in her mind. You don't have a song called Liquid Diamonds on your album and then say the word diamonds in an interview without it being thematically linked somehow. It's a very specific word. All these little experiences are your diamonds, which becomes your wisdom. It's like these jewels, these pearls. Oh my God, Tori Amos, I love you. I know, is she a songwriter or a jeweler? Not every girl is a pearl. Sometimes they're (laughs) diamonds. Tori Amos, she's so wise. This is what I love about her. And this is what takes me back all the time to being that 16-year-old kid in my room listening to not only, in particular, I'm thinking about the Boys for Pele interview disc, the series of interviews that came out, the phone interviews. That hit me so hard because it was like the first time I really got to hear her sort of expound on her work and like how just magnetic and charming and also like wise she seemed. And she spoke with confidence and like like she was so reassuring and I love her. Oh my God, I'm back there. There was something about your voice, David, when you embodied yourself as a 16-year-old chatter that really just took me back. I don't even know what I did. I just slipped effortlessly into character. I'm an actor. It's what I do. I breathe life into the words. It's always inside you. Mm. That 16-year-old David is always the eternal footman is always inside you. The eternal fat man is always just below the surface. Why don't you read this from the Boston Globe on April 28th, 1998, a mere 15 days later. I was trying to find strength as a woman somewhere, and it became this primal call, if you will, to the water and to rhythm. It started to give the woman in me some kind of confidence, some kind of reason for being. I couldn't be a woman who was a mother, she adds, but I could be a woman who could hold a space for the songs. So that's what I chose to do at this time. That's something we've really explored this whole album cycle is that maybe she wasn't able to become a mother, but the gift of the songs came in Mm -hmm. place and helped her heal from that experience. Thoughts? Even before this point, you know, Tori had always referred to her songs as children or the song girls. And I think that was never so true as it was in this case that they really became children of a different sort for her. This is from Visions, May 1998. Tori says, I'm still in the healing process, and with my songs, I want to convey the feeling that most questions don't have an answer. No one knows where the souls go once they've died. I carry with me a strange nowhere, which isn't based on a physical, but a completely spiritual experience. I somehow have a bad feeling and don't know where I should unload it. That builds up a lot of tension. We've read a lot of quotes about this idea, but never stated this way before. 
And this is perfect in the Pandora's Aquarium episode, I think, because even though it's a very nautical song and you can hear that she's in the water, you really get that feeling. It is like a vast nowhere, right? Would you agree? I do, now that you've said that. I hadn't really thought of it that way before, and I kind of like Pandora's Aquarium as this watery abyss maybe where souls go, or at least where one looks Mm -hmm. for them. I picture Tori, you know, with her hair kind of floating up, like, in the water, but, like, just diving, and, like, there is just dark blue water all around her for miles and miles and miles, and Mm -hmm. it's just, like, there's open, open water, like a vast nowhere or a vast expanse of space, yeah. And I love that image of where souls go. They go into the water. I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. Good one, David. Back into the kind of universal pool. I don't know. Why don't you read this from the Chicago Tribune, May 17th, 1998. Okay. This record isn't depressing. It's about this life force and finding life forces in the rhythm. That's what I locked on to. As a woman not following through the motherhood cycle, having it abruptly amputated. So where do you go? No man's land. There isn't a place for you to go. So I went to the water. I thought if I really want a mentor on this, the earth wasn't a bad one because she's always going through birth and death at the same time. It's also integrated. That became a huge place for me to jump off on. So the rhythm became my way back to my womanhood. Independent of being someone's sister, somebody's daughter, mother, lover, friend, it was just some primal woman. I love that. I can really picture her. We've already talked about how in Playboy Mommy, she was like on the sand in total despair, wet on the sand. So I'm imagining that she's like laying and letting the waves kind of crest over her. That's how I imagine like she's like that close to the ocean Mm -hmm. and just eventually the sound of it, like the roaring waves have to have some kind of effect on her. And I'm, you know, being the musician that she is, it's probably coming up with the rhythm, maybe not even actively or consciously, but like coming up with that rhythm of those ocean waves. I love this. And that idea of rhythm, you know, kind of brings to mind tides for sure which I would say is a part of this album, but I love that she mentions the cycle of birth and death because that, you know, again, takes me to the place of Pandora as the last song on the album, or is it the first? It really could just like start the cycle over and over again back into Spark. How do you feel about this no man's land idea again coming? She said she called it a nowhere space, like a nowhere place. And now it's like this no man's land where it's like you have all this grief. You have all of this stuff. You know, you've carried life for some time and then suddenly it's gone. And what do you do with all of this stuff? What do you do with all of these feelings? I almost feel like if Pele was exploring the underworld, then here we are in purgatory. Mm. Looking for the lost souls that are kind of neither here nor there. And that's really captured in the album artwork, too. Oh, you're right. You're so right. I'm getting a little emotional, a little worked up that this is the last song from the album, that we're wrapping up another cycle. I mean, yeah, we'll do the B-sides, but it's like the album, you know? I'm just, it's starting to hit me. It's fine. We'll get over it by taking a trip to space. This record isn't depressing, but this podcast episode is. This record isn't depressing. Do you hear me? From the Baltimore Sun, May 24th, 1998. Tori says, I couldn't chase after something that wasn't going to manifest itself in the physical. I didn't become a mother, although I owned life. I couldn't go back to being that person I was before. And yet, I knew that there was some primitive agony of women losing their children that I had to dive through. And believe it or not, Pandora took me by the hand and came first. It took me by the hand, drug me under, and all of a sudden, we were off. Yeah, this is the first song that came to her. This is the first. Although, we'll recall, she had already by that point played IIE and Cruel live during soundcheck. But... That was part of a different project that I think we agreed was reshaped for this, right? You just debunked Tori's theory on her own work. 
<laughs> or at least upset her timeline. Ah, that's what I'm here to do. Shake, shake, shake. Um, no, I feel like this is probably the first thing that came of this era. Whereas the two before were probably about that Hungarian vampire album that she was going to write. Remember? Or that Hungarian wedding she went to. But you know, I think that she reshaped. I think we even agreed about this, right? Or am I misremembering? Yeah, no, no, we agreed. And also that the subject matter, at least pieces of those two songs are grounded in some unresolved material from Boys for Pele. So yeah, I feel like they kind of have a foot in both worlds or in the shallow end and the deep end. I don't know. No, that's a great way to say it. Yeah. And this being the first thing she wrote and maybe not even like the first from the album. And she doesn't actually say this was the first song from the album, but this is the first song after the grief, after losing the baby, after being in the sand, wet, covered in ocean water, being unable to move. This is what came and suddenly we were off. Mm -hmm. So she doesn't actually say this is the first song I wrote for the album. She's saying this is the first song that came Mm -hmm. to heal maybe to help her heal from this experience. That's a keen eye. It takes a keen eye to notice that. It sure does. And I do think it's so interesting that in her grief, this is the song that came that sort of kicked off this project, not Spark or not Mm. Playboy Mommy, but this song. And again, that's how I kind of liken it to a horse's. It like opened the gateway. Oh yeah, sure. I would say, and maybe you agree, that this song and Liquid Diamonds pull the most from that idea of the rhythm of the water for sure they both not only reference water but sound watery for sure and we talked about it on the liquid diamonds episode that kind of programmed beat sounds splashy it almost sounds wet yeah it really does i want to know the details like what came to you what do you mean did the rhythm come to you did a piano riff come to you did the lyric come to you i want to know and if it was a lyric what lyric first and like can can i get the demos like like i want to know every detail (laughs) Do you think at this point it would even be worth asking? She probably doesn't remember, right? (laughs) No. She's like, there's still a box in Florida somewhere. Hopefully you can find them. Let me know if you do. I have a song called what? (laughs) I went to a place called where? (laughs) Um, From the Inside Connection, June 1998. Why don't you read this, David? I started writing right after I miscarried, and I miscarried on December 23rd, 1996, which obviously the angel was on the tree and the whole bit. So soon after that, the song started to come, thank God, and Pandora was the first one to come. Not in her entirety, but she started to come. She came off the water. I was staying on the river, and the water was a large part. Not in her entirety, but like, what part, Tori? Like, was it the riff? Was it the little lyric? Was it the foam? Was it the sea foam? Tell me! She came off the water. I was staying on the river, and the water was a large part of this record. I would spend hours on the water and seeing how the sea transformed itself, knowing that I had to transform myself from a woman who had lost a baby to a woman who was grieving to a woman who had to find joy in life again. So the songs began, I guess you could say, early January, and the album was finished in February of 1998, ready to be mastered. So over a year in the writing, recording, mastering process. I bet that came as a huge surprise to her coming right off that tour. Yeah, I think she even speaks to that, that she was planning on taking some time off. And here we go, right on time, two years later. Here, let's play this clip where uh, this is from K-Rock, uh, the last thing she did in 1996. What can we expect in 97 from you? Um, I don't really know yet. It's the first time where I... Uh... I I always promised myself when there was nothing coming musically and I had nothing to say that I would shut up and I'd go away for a while because um, I think the worst thing you can do as a musician is uh, kind of hang your butt out the window when it doesn't have any sun on it. (laughs) I'm going to take off for a while. 
It's just interesting how things happen and a life event happens or like you don't get to dictate as a creative person. You don't get to dictate when the inspiration comes, you know, Mm -hmm. best laid plans. Oh, I heard a joke. Do you know the best way to make God laugh? You tell her your plans. Mm. (laughs) We make plans and God says, ha. Um, This is from Alternative Press, July 1998. You know, when you've cried and cried and you really can't cry anymore. So you're very quiet. Sure do. Yeah, I call it last weekend, Tori. Yeah. I started hearing the water and Pandora, the last song on the record, came to me. She was sort of warning me that there are so many feelings under the rocks that I needed to turn into. She told me, you need to dive into this one, Tori, because your healing is in there. Once you go, it's a whole new journey, but you've got to metaphorically leave this little dock and come with me to find out what's really in this ocean of feelings. So I did, and that's where I met these songs, she says. I knew I wasn't going to find a lot of answers from philosophical camp because it's empty. What started comforting were the songs. I love that. And it's interesting because as an artist, your own work, you do work because it's supposed to come from somewhere and it's supposed to mean something, right? And you're supposedly a communion with like the divine in some way. And it's just, I love when she tells a story that proves that that's true, you know? David, I'm going to be so sad to leave this record behind. (laughs) We have so many more. Don't be sad. (laughs) Don't be sad that it's ending. Be glad that it happened. That's beautiful. (laughs) Read this from the Tennessean on August 23rd, 1998. Tennessee in Tennessee, Tennessee. Take me to another quote. Pandora was the first song to really come after we had lost the baby, when I was just trying to find a reason to wake up in the morning. I didn't really know what was in store for me when she came. It almost made sense that she came first, because she sort of paved the way, as she did mythologically, for other experiences, other feelings to come. I love a gateway drug, and I love a gateway song. Silent all these years, shows the way, across the river sticks, horses, Pandora. Do you think they're all friends? I wonder what the relationships the songs have with each other. I wonder if she would call songs that like often appear side by side in set lists, like China and Curtain Call, for example. I wonder if she'd call them friends or like sister song, like how she would phrase it. Like, are they friends? Like they have to be together all the time? Are any of them frenemies? Lovers or frenemies. From Westward, August 27, 1998. Tori says, when I lost the baby, I guess I felt I had certain rights. There was a line crossed with me. They say that in fighting for your child, even though it was unborn, you'll do certain things that you wouldn't do in any other circumstance. I think it made me feel like I could approach any deity from any religion and ask questions. We don't know where souls go when they die, and nobody could give me that information. I started to have weekly margarita sessions with the Christian God. And you know, deities and deities. That's what they do. And obviously, they know things we don't. But as a human woman, I felt a loss that deities don't experience. And I needed to express what that loss felt like to those deities. So this record was really about me respecting the life force in a way that I hadn't, but also putting into perspective all the things I was taught and the untruths I was taught about the guarantees that you are given. That resonates with me because I had this sort of like revelation when I was working on the Playboy Mommy episode because she talks about there too having drinks with the Christian God, having vodka with the Christian God. And I think what she means, indulge me for a second and tell me if you think I'm not correct. But when she says I had weekly margarita sessions with the Christian God or I drank vodka, I sat down across from the Christian God, we had a vodka. I think she gets drunk. And when she's drunk, I don't know, you could be a sad drunk. You could be a happy drunk. You could be a horny drunk. You could be all kinds of drunk. 
But I think it, what she's meaning here is that when she's drunk, she's playing out these like scenarios in her mind and she's asking these questions. And that's what she means. Like she's maybe crying, maybe like grieving, but asking why. And she's waiting for an answer, but she's not getting it. And I think that's what maybe she could mean. What do you think? Maybe. I never really took that literally. And this is all, you know, kind of Tori speak, the likes of which we'd heard before. Like during Pele, she was saying, I had tea with Lucifer. I had tea with Muhammad. I'd had tea with the Christian God and under the pink. Like she's talked to all these dudes before. I'm not sure it meant that she was like literally getting drunk and then like having, you know, heart to heart conversations with different deities, but maybe. I feel like when you go through something, maybe, I don't know, maybe your behavior changes. She's bringing up vodka and margaritas a lot. I feel like she's referencing like being super drunk and like using whatever she can to cope. Because then why does it change from tea with Lucifer to margaritas and vodka with God? I don't know. I feel like that's just sort of indicative of the depths of her despair, maybe. I want an answer, David. Tori talks a lot about good wine, but other than that, she doesn't really strike me as a heavy drinker. I could be wrong. She definitely doesn't like ass sweat. Who does? Jon Stewart. <laughs> I love ass sweat. I love it. From Aquarian Weekly, September 30th, 1998. Which one came first? Pandora's Aquarium was the first one down. I'm sure that the last thing on your mind at that point was making a record. Yeah, especially when I was pregnant. I was so far away from making a record. But as the song started coming, it wasn't about making a record. It was about being creative again. I had to create life, even if it was song life. I began to value song life in a way that maybe I had taken for granted. They're not just songs, you know what I mean? They're friends, they're teachers, and they're drinking buddies. Hmm. I love your view on Sorrow, on how she's not always maudlin, that there's a lot more to her than people think there is. Yeah, there's a depth. I think I started to begin to open up to the depths of life and death. I am telling you, David, she was wasted during this time. She was coping. (laughs) She was drinking. And this, to me, more than any other, tells me that. And I love to hear that she wasn't writing this to make a record. That hasn't been clear in any other quote. It's that I was just being creative. It was about creating life. There was no end goal. There was no final product in my mind. I love that she's making that clear here, which is this was about creating the song life and tori at this point what is she 34 35 now Uh so she's been writing songs her whole life i can see her taking them for granted i can see them not i mean even though they come to her and you know she honors the muses and she creates what the song is i can see her not looking to them as healers and teachers so much at this point you know you know she's written thousands of songs by this point in her life you know and i just love the idea of her drinking getting wasted singing like she's your cocaine or probably singing northern lad or something northern lad i was gonna say that too (laughs) yeah You could be right. There are a lot of references here. And, you know, when she talks about Playboy Mommy, she literally says she'd been drinking champagne and fell down the stairs. So she was drunk. Tori had a whoopsie. And she also said in the Playboy Mommy episode, well, she said it on her own, and we put it in the Playboy Mommy episode, that after this had experience, she'd gone off with her girlfriends to get blasted, which is what for weeks is what she said is what you do with your girlfriends. And so she clearly was blasted for weeks for weeks she was also loaded up by kurtzweil and i don't think she's using that term correctly yeah i was loaded loaded with sample bassoons i was loaded up (laughs) from the new jersey star ledger 20th november 1998 amos's poetic stream of conscious lyrics have always been a critical part of her appeal though they're not always easy to decipher take a line like the lord of the flies was diagnosed as sound from the choir girl hotel track pandora's aquarium i use a lot of symbology so if you dive into the symbol world you'll have a better idea of what's going on you have to go into the myth of persephone to really understand what i'm talking about 
You have to know that the Lord of the Flies is another word for Hades, and that Hades captured Persephone. It's the rape of Persephone. That is her myth. And she became queen of the underworld and couldn't leave for half the year. But did she choose to stay by eating the pomegranate seed? Did she know the rules, or did he trick her? I'm not sure, and I still don't understand the line. Amos concedes it's possible to. Put yourself into a pretzel position, but that doesn't mean they're casually constructed. I spend a lot of time on the songs, and I'm quite vicious with the editing process. Sometimes I don't rewrite because, you know, it's finished. You look back and go, it's very clear that she's finished, and she doesn't want me to mess with her. Amos doesn't just see the songs as people, but communicates with them, too. Sometimes she knows she's finished writing, she says, because... You get a boundary from a song. I wonder if some of them are from the West Coast saying, I'm drawing my boundary with you, Tori. You have crossed my line. You have crossed my line. But here is an interesting note that I'm going to point out. She says, you get a boundary from a song. I wonder if some of them are from the West Coast. I will remind you that I spent all of 2005 with Tori telling me, I'm sorry, Hotel is a West Coast song. So, mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She wasn't making it up. And something really interesting that was sent to us by a listener, Christoph Schobrook, who's been a supporter of ours for a very long time, said that if you're driving north from Santa Fe, New Mexico, on Highway 76 to Trucas, if you take exit 75 and follow the 75 to the 518, you get to Taos. And I wonder if that little bit, exit 75, I'm still alive, didn't come from the under the pink days, where she's like maybe made that little ditty up as she's taking exit 75 to Taos. Exit 75. I'm still alive. Oh my god. But that actually makes sense to me since we associate Taos with Under the Pink and Eric recording it there. So she's revisiting Mm -hmm. these past loves. Of course he would be one of them. Oh, I'm so glad she got that bit into a song. Me too. But I really think what that means is hotels about you. Yeah, because I'm from New Mexico. Every time she references New Mexico, she's like, I'm going to visit Eve in my dilapidated Mustang. From Magical Blend, January 1999. So now we are officially out of the era. We're out of the cycle of press for Choir Girl. She says, I think the first one was Pandora. It was a strange time for me. Yet when I listen to the record, it's not depressing because I appreciate life in a way I really hadn't thought about before. Some people say motherhood changes you. And for me non-motherhood really changed me when you lose a baby there's a line that's been crossed by the deities i started to question the universe and since i live on the river i started to watch the rhythm of the water after i miscarried i was trying to find something to identify with as a woman because i didn't feel very confident at that point it's a pretty helpless thing to lose a baby i had to find some primal feminine place inside myself to really understand that the earth has both birth and loss every day As I felt all the different rhythms that the earth produces, I started to see rhythm in a way I really hadn't before. As I went to the piano, I knew now that it had to be written and built into the structure. It wasn't something to be put on top of the songs later. I love that. I don't think we have a quote where she speaks so clearly about the decision to integrate the band into the songs and that she was really trying to bring this idea of rhythm to life in a way that she hadn't before. I also like that, you know, two seconds away from this era ending, she's her memory starting to fade already. She's like, I think the first one was Pandora. I don't know. I know. Not even a year has gone by. Yeah. And she's like, Mom, I don't recall. I think that's on Choir Girl. Maybe. Why don't you read this expose from Columbia House Magazine? Spring 1999. I'm afraid they'll come after me. The record is really about the life force and that no matter what you go through, there are days that are going to be really bad days. To tell yourself there aren't any, I think, is the cruelest thing you can do to yourself. Then you think to yourself, what have I done? How could this happen? 
That's just like part of the change of seasons. It will happen, and yet I found a beauty in sorrow because I got to know her. As I got to spending time putting my feet in the water next to her and listening to her, I realized she likes a giggle and a high heel and probably a rave on Friday nights. It's not as if she doesn't have giggles in her world. She just understands where tears come from. More than anything, she's not afraid of them. As I really got to know this, there was a calmness that started to happen inside myself after I'd lost the baby. This record isn't about loss, but there's a thread of that in there, whether it's lovers or dreams you had or people. She's just so well-spoken. I love, I don't know, there's something very comforting about hearing the way she puts things into metaphor. I agree. And also, I believe Tori to be an alchemist. She's always transmuting her experience into art or ultimately wisdom, I think. So in this moment, she's really sitting with grief and sorrow, saying, okay, it's not something I want to run away from. What can I really learn from this? Yeah, she's not afraid of the shadow side, and that is really remarkable. I feel like um, even myself, and I hold myself accountable more than I hold anyone else accountable. You know what I mean by that? I'm my own harshest critic. I hold myself to a standard that I would never hold anybody else to. Even myself, I don't always like confront my truth. So it's really hard to confront your truth. Do you confront your truth? No, I just let Tori do it for me. Thanks, Tori. <laughs> this is from Piece by Piece 2005. Because I have a lot of songs in my life that come with archetypes intrinsic to their own myths, I feel as if I've been able to try on many different archetypes. So much so that it feels like Pandora's box of archetypes sometimes, but not all of them figure into my personal myths. Of course they do when I step into the genes of a song and take on that archetype in performance, whether in the studio or on stage. But I had to separate archetypes that I play with and that, yes, may affect me, but are not foundational in my personal myth. Just as I had to accept Rhiannon as one of the pieces that make up my core person, I also had to realize that I am now more aligned with Demeter than with Aphrodite or even Persephone, who seemed like an archetype that I could claim. Even though there is a violation and a rape involved in my life, that story is not my core. For example, Persephone is Beanie's myth. Beanie is Nancy Shanks, one of my closest friends. We've developed the habit of calling each other Beanie, stemming from the expression, do you know what I mean, Bean? By making her wound her wise wound, she has transmuted her multiple rapes and betrayals into a fabric that is a piece of the rich tapestry of Persephone, queen of the underworld. Beanie is no longer only the ravished, victimized core, Greek for maiden. Together, Demeter and Persephone are maiden, mother, and crone. I follow that, I think, for the most part. It's that she doesn't have to absorb the myth or the archetype of the song, that it's not necessarily her story, that the songs come to her with their own stories, and that she's able to follow that story and turn that story into music, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's her own story, and she doesn't absorb that story into her life. But she can, of course, step into the genes of the story when she's on stage in performance. Yeah, and we've mentioned this before, but she went on to do that literally more so with Strange Little Girls and American Doll Posse. <laughs> but she does sort of talk about Doll Posse in particular as a way of exploring these archetypes. Do you remember that first clip we got from the Doll Posse era where Tori was like, I'm out shopping right now and I can't keep a hold of a one of them. Can't keep a hold of a one of them. You love that. You had a, you had a burned on a CD <laughs> that you were digging around I for, do. right? <laughs> yeah, I found it. Let's play it here. Hey there, this is Tori. So by now you may have heard about American Doll Posse. I wanted to officially introduce you to the girls. They will all be going on tour. We're out shopping right now, and I can't keep a hold of a one of them. They'd love to get to know you. They've all heard so much about you. You can look for them online. They will all be accessible if you can find their blogs, which they update frequently. 
Instead of an Easter egg hunt this season, I'm hosting a posse hunt. Happy hunting. I was going to save that for the 2007 era as a blast from our past, but it's going to be a very long time till we get there, so you won't remember it. I think in that clip, it's clear how excited Tori was by this concept. Instead of an Easter egg hunt, I'm hosting a posse hunt. A posse hunt. Happy hunting. <laughs> Should we get into the line by line? Posse hunt? Tampax? I don't know about you, but I love my posse. <laughs> you want me to hunt for what? <laughs> Okay, are you ready to go into the line-by-line? Okay. Let's dive in. Pandora's Aquarium. Let's I talk was going to ask you that. Well, I'm here to ask you that. So the burden's on you. I never really thought about it before. <laughs> like, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never have thought about it before. And like, either. it's a song. But I really love the image that you came up with earlier of sort of a purgatory, like an ocean where souls go. Because if you look at Pandora's box, which is a box, let's read this. Pandora's box is an artifact in Greek mythology connected with the myth of Pandora and Hesiod's works and days. In modern times, an idiom has grown from it, meaning any source of great and unexpected troubles, or alternatively, a present, which seems valuable, but which in reality is a curse. So if you think of what we already know as Pandora's box, this just kind of like turmoil that's unleashed into the world, then go back to what you said about a purgatory where souls go. You're torn between two worlds. You have nowhere to go. You're in a nowhere space. I think you were onto something, David. I think Pandora's Aquarium is this ocean purgatory where souls go. Yeah, and Tori has also talked a lot about healing and going into your wound and having a wise wound. And I think to do that, you have to really look all of these kind of negative, painful feelings head on. So I feel like when she's diving under the rocks, to find her healing, that's what she's doing. She's going to confront kind of all the things that were released maybe in Pandora's box, which is death and sorrow and all of these things that you can't run away from and that are a fact of life. And if you want to heal, you have to address them. Well said. She dies for shells. She dives for shells. So is that what you're talking about? Like, is this her actually going to pick up those pieces? Are the shells those pieces? Like within each shell is contained a fragment that she must reclaim? I think so, and it's multiple shells. I can actually picture this character kind of, you know, picking them up one by one and turning them over. On the ocean floor? Yeah. Like she's all the way down? Yeah. With her nautical nuns. With her nautical nuns. She's always had a great respect for nuns, right? She talks about nuns in Caudalite Sneeze. In fact, they do the backing vocals. Their sister Janet, sister Ernestine. It doesn't surprise me that the nuns would be there to back her up. They're like there to support her in her dive. I agree. And I guess, you know, we haven't really explored what kinship Tori might have with nuns other than she's talked about wanting to marry Jesus when she was a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's what nuns kind of do. <laughs> Maybe that's how she relates to nuns. Also, it's very comforting, I think. It feels very comforting. Like, you're going to go to the dark ocean floor to find thoughts you thought you would never tell, to reveal parts of yourself that you never thought you would open up about or that you would face head on. But you have these very comforting figures there 
with you and it's going to be okay because they're there with you and that's there's something very comforting like having a friend in that moment of your deepest despair that's interesting because i think a lot of people consider nuns stern authority figures not necessarily a comforting presence the only reason i think that they're a comforting presence is because she's talked about them in school right having like a nun as a piano teacher sister ernestine with a nautical nudge. when you hear nautical nuns do you think of these stern women because I've always felt that nautical nuns were like a, f- besides the alliteration of nautical nuns, besides that idea, it's like a sweet image. It's like the old lady in Sister Act. My God. My, yeah. nothing I could do could make me untrue to my, oh my God. God. <laughs> yeah, that's who I picture. I mean, I think we could really go down the rabbit hole with this idea. I kind of like the idea that, of course, priests and Catholicism are the authority figures, but the nuns are the ones who really run things and kind of know what's going on mm-hmm. behind the scenes. So mm-hmm. if you want to know what's up, you got to, well, you always got to go to a woman, but you should really go to a nun too. Got to go to the nuns, the nautical nuns. I imagine nuns are good secret keepers. Probably. And you mentioned the alliteration of nautical nuns, which is very pleasing, but also the imagery. I can imagine, you know, a really exaggerated habit like the flying nun kind of acting as fish fins in the water. Yeah, Yeah, they're nautical nuns. They're fully dressed in habit and everything as they dive. Yeah. And what do you think the connection to a casino is? Because on the Choir Girl map, it's the nautical nuns casino. Oh, see, this is another bit of evidence that she doesn't consider them stern figures that they're they get a bad rap that she looks to them for comfort Mm -hmm. because like if in her mind nuns held a space of strict rule keeping and discipline if they held that space for her would they be at a casino being wild no are they all hanging out playing poker yeah of course they are i know she's playing poker with the nautical nuns in the nautical nuns casino oh interesting does this mean that the nautical nuns are stragglers And thoughts you thought you'd never tell. You know, I think this is the darkest parts of yourself that you never thought that you would face. Not necessarily tell to other people, but putting them into song, confronting them, speaking them. That is a lot. Because in Hey Jupiter, we had Guess I Thought I Could Never Feel the Things I'm Feeling. And now she has thoughts she thought she'd never tell. I think they're both linked. That's a good observation. And Hey Jupiter is arguably watery too, in the sense that she talks about running the shower in the hotel room and kind of seeing this drawing appear in the mirror, in the condensation on the mirror. I don't know. There's so much about, we all have these rich interior lives and we hold secrets that we don't ever tell anybody. It's a good reminder that everybody's kind of got going on what you've got going on, you know, and you're not alone. Mm. It's kind of a nice reminder. I can't choose between the shower or the aquarium sometimes. The aquarium or the bath. She does a full repeat here of that whole first section, which to me is just like her setting the scene. I'm not asking you to believe in me. me. This isn't about you. This is about me. Is that how you take this line? 
Yeah, I feel like Tori has talked a lot about the experience that inspired this album causing her to question her worth as a woman and her ability to carry life. And in this song, she's kind of arguing the opposite or staking her claim, like, I don't have anything to prove in terms of my womanhood. Like, I'm a fully formed person. Who's she speaking to? I'm not asking you. Any potential naysayers, I guess. Or she's speaking it into the abyss, which she always characterizes as male, probably. Or God, she could be talking to a male deity here. Like, I don't believe in you, and I'm not asking you to believe in me. Is there anything here... I'm going to dive into a side topic. Is there anything here having to do with her following, her legions of teenagers following her? I'm not asking you to believe in me. There's something about this chorus or the way she structures this that makes me think about the fans. I don't know why. Like, I'm not asking to be mythologized. You know what? I'm with you, and I think you're onto something, and you got there a little before me, but I was thinking about that and her relationship with her fans when we get to line me up in single file yeah, with exactly. all your grievances. That- like, I was actually picturing the line of fans waiting to talk to her. <laughs> a meet and greet. Any meet and greet. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Especially San Diego 2001. That's the one I'm thinking of. I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you to believe in me. She's coming off tour. Remember, this song came in January. She's fresh off the tour, right? She's had a year of touring and talking to fans. And Tori, you know, hits us in our emotional center and our emotional core. So has she ever met someone who didn't burst into tears when she first talked to them? Probably not. So this has got a lot to do with that. That line me up in single file. I'm not asking you to believe in me. There's a lot of healing probably. And a lot of like that might come from the tour experience, like getting yourself back, right? Like you've been out there on the road for a year giving. Now this private time is getting yourself back. So that's something Mm. to heal from too. I think that's really insightful. And at this point too, her popularity was, you know, Tori Starr was on the rise. Her popularity was (laughs) continuing to climb. So maybe she was really assessing her role as a celebrity. Maybe this is really when Tori, the artist on stage, started to become more differentiated or compartmentalized from Tori, the person, and that she Mm -hmm. was working through that. Who am I on stage? Who is this image that people relate to? And who is the person they expect to talk to when they talk to me? And who am I really as a person? Like, how do I embody all of these things? You're right, because the shift, I think, on stage happened around 2002, 2003, like the actual shift, because I feel like in 99, she also went through additional miscarriage and she was still very emotionally present. Not that she's not ever emotionally present, but, you know, she was working through stuff even in 99. And 2001, she was very open about her daughter. You know, she would share stories on stage and it was very an open experience. So I feel like Who Am I on stage really transformed in about 0203 and she became that sensual woman that we know and love. Yeah, I think you're right. And a little bit of a wall came up. Yeah. More so than it had been there before. Yeah, but you have to. You've got to. Uh, Just a comment, not a criticism. I understand. I have to build a wall myself. Too many walls have been built in between us, Kathy Dennis. Boy, I think you're confused. I'm not Persephone. Boy, I think you're confused. I'm not Persephone. I'm Demeter. So the way I take this goes back into, I'm not asking you to believe in me. I'm not the queen of the underworld. I'm not the queen of the nerds anymore. I'm not your savior. This really puts me in this place of where she's kind of speaking to the fans in a way, or it's at least partially in my mind always rang as like influenced by that idea. I love that too, because I feel like as a fan base, unfortunately, particularly around this period, we wanted Tori to kind of be trapped in the underworld. 
Yeah. The performances on Do Drop In were fucking incredible. And that came from great pain. No wonder she doesn't want to relive that. Right. right? But we were kind of wanting to hold her in that place. Yeah, we were. We were very selfish. You were. I am. I am. Selfishness is mine. <laughs> That's a good joke. Phone can be dangerous with tape across my mouth. Foam can be dangerous with tape across my mouth. I get this line on a deep level. Thank you. Tell me why. With tape across your mouth is just another way of being silent. Silent all these years, right? Like losing your voice, not being able to speak, not being able to express yourself. If we go into this scenario where this person, this character, or Tori, if it is, feels like she's being backed into a corner. Like, I'm not asking you to believe in me. I didn't request that. You made that choice, right? I'm not your savior. I'm not this person. Then this line makes me think that she feels unable to speak, unable to express, like that she's being backed in. Foam can be dangerous. Like, it's all bubbling up around her, and she can't breathe, and she will eventually suffocate and die. She will eventually drown in sea foam because if she's unable to gasp for air or even speak, then she'll die. She'll expire. And she, and I think the foam comes from the idea that she's in the water, the sea foam, in the song. That's where I think foam comes from. Mm-hmm. Because foam, you don't look at foam as anything dangerous, but even foam will kill you if your mouth is taped shut. Yeah, and I think this line follows on from thoughts you thought you'd never tell. And how self-destructive it can be to not process your feelings oh, or yeah. confront your material. And if you don't give voice to things, you can kind of drown yes. in that dark place. That's great. I love that. That you have put the tape on your own mouth so you won't tell these secrets. Yes, exactly. Unless you pull that tape off, you will suffocate and die. Yes. Ooh, I just got chills. Turn your air down. It's cold. It's December. It's December and it is not cold. This thing. These things you do, I never asked you how. Who is she talking to? I never asked you how. Boy, I think you're confused. She's talking to a boy. I am not asking you to believe in me. Boy. Do you think this thought, is it all related to pianos trying to be guitars? How so? These things you do as a man, as a musician, as a rock star, as a front man of a band, things that Tori wanted to do and be with her music. Oh, interesting. I never asked you how because I didn't need to. I do my own thing. I guess I've always put that sentence in the space that the things, whoever she's speaking to, the things they do, he does, because boy, I think you're confused. I've always put that in the space of like the things that he does are great and I wish I knew how to. I never asked you how. But I don't I don't think I put that there anymore now that I'm assessing it. I think maybe it lives in a space of like maybe I should have asked you how because I just always accepted what you did mm. instead of asking mm. why you're doing that or how you're doing that. I can see that. It's somehow related to the secrets that you thought you'd never tell. I can see that, but I could also see it being sort of dismissive and being related to... I'm not asking you to believe in me. Like, I didn't ask you how because I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't need anything from you. You can also read it as regret to, like, maybe this person's gone or maybe that relationship is closed or the opportunity to ask how is gone. Mm. And it's a thought that I just never got a chance to ask you how. So there's also, it could also be that. There's a million different ways to interpret this line. Maybe not a million, but several dozen. Line me up in single Line me up in single file with all your grievances. These damn fans. (laughs) Am I wrong, though? 
these EWFs, let's follow this if it's not about the fans. Let's just follow it down. If she's saying I'm not Persephone, I think what she's saying is I'm not your savior, right? Or, or like it could also go back to the quote where she's like, I'm not feeling like I'm Persephone anymore. Like being kidnapped or raped is part of my story, but it's not my entire story. So she could be saying like that doesn't define me. This is not what defines me. I love um, that. And I also love this particular line as a follow up to yes, I know what you think me you never shut up and you always find my faults faster than you find your own yeah i think you're confused i'm not persephone that's not who i am Ooh, and then it kind of makes me think of her experience with the reporters how that's all they ever want to talk about is that rape story yeah and they always want more blood and it's never enough and they always want more detail yeah more detail you just said right yeah, yeah they want more 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 so i'm not asking you to believe in me i don't need you to believe me Ooh, this is getting good it is getting good and i also want to point out at one point, Tori said she would perform me in a gun at every show for the rest of her life. And the Plugged tour was the first tour where she didn't perform it every night. Mm-hmm. So I feel like she had worked through whatever she needed to work through as it pertains to that experience. And she felt like she had become so identified with it and people were wanting to keep her there. And like you said, repeatedly asking her about it. And she was trying to move on from that personal myth of Tori, so to speak. Like, this does not define me. I am not that experience. I love that. I think that is probably more on the mark. I like the idea of I'm not Persephone being you don't understand who I am. Like, that's not who I am. And let's, I'm going to take it just really quickly back to the quote where this is from the piece by piece quote where she says, even though there's a violation and a rape involved in my life, that story is not my core. For example, Persephone is Beanie's myth. And then she goes on to say, by making her wound her wise wound, she has transmuted her multiple rapes and betrayals into a fabric that has a piece in the rich tapestry of Persephone, queen of the underworld. Beanie is no longer only the ravished victim. She's much more... I really, I've never thought of it that way before, but it kind of resonates to me now. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like maybe with that in mind, these things you do, I never asked you how, is Tori saying, I showed you respect that you never showed me. You're always asking for more, more detail. How did this happen? Is this from your life? Give us everything. And I never put you in that place. Yeah, like I'm consistently asked to explain details and I've never shown you that disrespect. Yes. Tori's good. Tori's good. She's a good songwriter. She should go pro. Line me up in single file. All right. So if it is not about the fans, but if it is, let's just follow it through and if it is. I'm not saying it's about the fans, but it's about the fans. But also, also the media. Oh, you're right, because the media is also lined up in single file, right? And they're always coming for her, especially during this time. There was a lot of times that she talked about the reporters coming in with their own agenda, and they wanted to write the story that they wanted to write, and it didn't matter what she said, that they were going to write the story that they wanted to write. So line me up in single file with all your grievances. Could be both, or it could be either or. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that Boys for Pele interview CD, because when you listen to those back-to-back, it's clear that they're all happening on the same day, within the same span of a few hours. So it's like, like, I think they're happening minutes apart, honestly. Yeah, she's just rolling through and being asked. You know, she's being asked the same questions over and over and over and over again. Yeah, and this just happens to be the bit of the press junket that was conducted by phone. And then the rest of the day was like live interviewers. Mm -hmm. And whoever's at the switchboard in the hotel recorded it and then leaked it. That's how I think it happened. (laughs) Goddamn operators. Probably the same person who eventually leaked the 2003 version of Mary from Tales of a Librarian. (laughs) Probably. Still, but I can taste you still. 
stare, but I can taste you're still alive below the waist. Obviously, there is a pun here. Wordplay. Wordplay, double entendre. Below the waist, meaning below below the belt. human body below the belt yeah but she spells it waste as in garbage w-a-s-t-e mm-hmm. below the foots oh yeah on the kind of light sneeze episode we talked about or you talked about foots not necessarily being a punny or a clever spin on plural feet but foots being another word for muck right yeah like the dregs yeah the, like the waste basically yeah. below the foots yeah almost pictured like an oil spill floating on the surface and like what's under that Oil spill. Oil spill. <laughs> you said it. Ah, that's our secret word secret of the day. Stare, but I can taste you're still alive below the waist. Again, takes me back to the meet and greets where, like, all we do is stare at her, like, uh, oh my god. It's almost impossible to speak to her sometimes, mm-hmm. especially back then when we were younger. Totally, definitely, so, definitely not now. Now I'm just like, step to nah, It's easy. <laughs> we ran a costume contest together last Halloween. It's okay. Still, but I can taste you still I think this is directed to herself in some ways. She still has something to offer below this grief and this loss and everything that's like on top of her at this moment. Below that waist, there's still a heart and a woman kicking, you know? There's still something there. Yeah, and as hard as this situation was, she's going to make it through this and not be consumed Mm -hmm. by her feelings or this grief. As overwhelming as it can be, she's sort of reminding herself that it's not gonna be forever. Do you think this is anything but to herself? I really feel this is to herself. I do too. Ripples go, and ripples go, and ripple back to me. Back to me. Ripples come, and ripples go, and ripple back to me. Has there ever been a better way of saying, like, life happens? Like, this is the cycle of life? ripples come and ripples go like there will be disturbances in your water and then they'll go away but then they'll come back and they'll come back to me and then they'll go away Mm -hmm. and then they'll come back to me and then they'll go away All right, so let's take it a little further. If we're thinking about the fans, David, let's talk about Pandora's Aquarium. Like, being set in an aquarium, to me, you know that song Glass House by Ani DeFranco? And the idea of, like, a celebrity living in a glass house being constantly looked at, is that why it's set in an aquarium? Like, an aquarium is a glass box that you see in from all sides. You get no privacy. Could that be something? I like that thought, and I think you're right, yeah. And it's almost like a one-way mirror. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're gazing at that fish, but that fish isn't gazing back. Or maybe it doesn't even right. maybe it doesn't even know it's being scrutinized. Oh my god. <laughs> and that little plastic castle is a surprise every time. It is. You see what I'm saying? That little plastic castle and then also just like living in my glass house. Look crowd has been gathering outside since dawn. Mm. I don't know. There's something about that that tells me 
gives me a clue that this is like her celebrity song. And and then what you said earlier, like you're surprised about how this came to her. This was the first thing that came to her. Maybe it's not so surprising after this tour and just being sort of on display for so long. And like you said, like it was a very painful tour. Like it came from a dark place. So ha- yeah. being, having your pain on display for a year. And she said, you know, more recently that she can't go back and look at those performances because the pain is so clear to her Mm -hmm. and she doesn't Mm -hmm. want to revisit that place. And she's a little almost embarrassed by it that she showed such vulnerability. So, yeah, I can definitely imagine that she felt very much on display or almost turned inside out. She turned herself inside out. I love that she's setting it again. She's setting it where we are. We're still here in the water, in this nowhere space, this giant black ocean or this giant deep blue ocean as photographed in the Choir Girl booklet. That's Pandora's Aquarium, I think. And she's on the rocks, by the way. Remember, they told her to look under the rocks and that's where the healing will be. Yeah. And that's why she's photographed on those rocks. It just made sense to me. I feel like this is one of the songs we need to play for someone who's never heard it or ideally never Ooh. never heard Tori because her sort of vocal acrobatics, I take it for granted now, but the first time you listen to it, I'm wondering how someone would process it. She dies for shells with She dies for shells with her nautical nuns and thoughts you thought you'd never tell. I think that repeating this bit of that first verse into this second verse is saying that it's not over. There's so many layers of grief and there's so many layers of sorrow that nothing needs to change in the verse as a songwriter. Like we're still there. We're still hunting pieces. We're still reclaiming the fragments. And the ripples come, the ripples go. It again sort of feeds into that idea of things being cyclical. Yeah, very much so. I love the structure of this song, though. Like, it doesn't follow classic song structure. Like, here we are with Line Me Up in single file again, which in a normal verse-chorus structure of a song, we would go to the I'm not asking you to believe in me part again first. Because she does repeat it, but now she just switches them up. We got the single file section, and then we got the I'm not asking you to believe in me section Mm -hmm. second. So it's flipped. There's something about that structure, too, that is very liquid, that's very fluid, that you can't really kind of pin this song down. It lives in that space where it's like, you've got the like soft sway of the wave, you know? You're so right. The song itself is liquid, like wood. And it's kind of of meandering. Like Pandora. And there isn't even really a bridge, right? No, there's not. I think that the bridge would have to be the end, right? right? It's a bridge to nowhere. Yeah, exactly. I'm on a bridge to nowhere. Line me up and single fire. Line me up in single file with all your grievances stare, but I can taste you're still alive below the waist. Nipples come. I really like the idea of her telling herself that she's still alive below the waist, using that as kind of like a mantra, a mantra towards healing and towards like, you can come out of this, you will pull yourself up out of this. Ripples come and ripples go. 
So she says something there. What do you what do you hear? I hear come on. So do I. I hear come on. Come on back to me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like coaxing. Like come on. Mm -hmm. Come back to me, life. Yeah, because if the ripples are life, you want the ripples. You want the ripples to come back to me. That, but I also can't help but think about, you know, kind of the disembodied soul of this child. You're right. Like anything that you've lost, if you're going through grief and loss, like if you're going through that, this takes me back to her quotes about making sort of any deal that you can make to like you would dive to the bottom of the ocean. You would make any deal that you could make to get it back or to get that child back to save the child. Damn. Way to gut me, David, at the end of the line by line. I was saving it for the end. Ripples come and ripples go. I'm just going to say it now. I think that little whispered come on is my favorite vocal moment because I feel like it's so in the moment and specific to that performance and that it wasn't planned or written. David, I would appreciate you not reading from my diary. Ah, (laughs) I found the key. I couldn't help myself. I have no self-control. I agree with you. I think that those moments are peppered throughout the album as we've sort of picked out. Can't you just in hotel we just talked about? Mm -hmm. Those moments make this such a live record in a way that the first two records weren't necessarily. And that she's playing live with the band, you know? It just is like we're playing. And also like, I mean, we'll talk about the music, but here this, the music in this section is kind of messy. It's not like perfect, you know? You can hear the strings of the bass. You can hear some crunchiness under there. And I feel like how you had talked about in Playboy Mommy, it's like a little dirty, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a little dirt on top of it, which I really like. You really feel like they're playing in a room together. Yeah, and she really does capture that kind of after-hours lounge feel. Mm-hmm, for sure. Like one of those like seedy after-parties mm-hmm. in like, a speakeasy. There's yeah, like stale right. cigarette smoke floating through this aquarium somehow. Mm, I love it. Like it would never be possible in the real world, but in <laughs> this world, the nautical nuns have cigarettes in their mouth while they're diving. No thanks, none for me, no cigarettes. Only peeled Havanas, thanks, okay, bye. She's in New York somewhere checking her accounts. Who goes to the bank in person to check their balance? This was 1998, David. We all did. No, there were ATMs. Well, at the bank. That's the thing. The ATMs were at the bank. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) But why does she have to, like, okay, she's in New York somewhere checking her accounts is obviously a modernized Persephone, right? Do you take that? Yes, she is is a woman of the 90s. Yeah, she is out of the underworld, out of the mythology, and into the present. She's in New York somewhere checking her accounts. So who is the queen of the underworld? Yeah, I don't know. In 1998. So who is in New York somewhere checking her accounts? Madonna? Maybe it's Madonna. I wonder if it's anyone specifically or if it's just this idea, because it's so dismissive. She's in New York somewhere. Like, I don't know where she's at. She's in New York somewhere. Makes me feel like it could be just dismissive of identity as well. Like, I don't know who she is. She's in, you know, she's in New York somewhere. I don't know her. Exactly. Like, it's like, kind of like, I don't know her. She's in New York somewhere. 
I really like the idea of her being in New York somewhere, checking her accounts, like being completely distanced from Tori herself here in this moment, who looks at herself as Demeter to say, I'm not Persephone. I don't even know who or where she is. She's so far removed from who I am. That distance and separation between the two of them really resonates here for me. Because if the Lord of the Flies was another word for Hades, and Hades is the person who trapped Persephone, right? Yes. Then it was all just diagnosed as sound. What does that mean? The Lord of the Flies was diagnosed as It was all just static. It was all just a mistake. What is diagnosed as sound to me? Well, that's interesting because I always took that as like when you have sound reasoning or when something has maintained its integrity, like you say it's still sound. Oh. Not like audible sound. Yeah. I never would have ever gotten there ever in a million years. And I can't help but point out to me that almost sounds like another way of saying, Father Lucifer, you never looked so sane. The Lord of the Flies is diagnosed as sound. So hell is real. Like Hades is another word for hell, right? Like the underworld is Hades. If the underworld was sound, does that mean then that the underworld is reasonable? Is it real? What it, like? But I don't think the underworld or Hades is the same as Christian hell in this realm of kind of eternal punishment and damnation. No, I agree. I'm saying is that it exists. Hades was diagnosed as sound. If what you're saying is the way she intended it, is she saying that the underworld exists? It was diagnosed as sound, like it is sound. Because if you say something is sound, like it, it checks out, right? That's sound. It checks out. The Hades checks out. It was diagnosed as checking out. It's present. Yes. And yeah, okay. And then that would be then where Pandora is, like where Pandora's aquarium is. It kind of makes me feel like that goes hand in hand with that. And it's that deep, dark place. Yes. That's so interesting because I've always taken it as the Lord of the Flies was diagnosed as sound audible things that you hear, something you hear, sound. Mm. She capitalizes it for crying out loud. Is that at all being colored by the website RIP Diagnose Sounds? Are you talking about the little section of the hereinmyhead.com? Yes. No. Although, brilliant turn of phrase, Audrey Romano. Um, <laughs> I guess it's colored by the idea that it was dismissed the Lord of the Flies is also a book. Obviously, it has nothing to do with flies. It's about like um, you're turning to your primal instincts, right? But the Lord of the Flies was diagnosed as noise. To me, means that it was nothing to pay attention to. Mm. That it was just chatter. That it was ended up being not what we thought it was. It was nothing to be concerned about. Mm. If the Lord of the Flies is another word for Hades, what does she say? This is from the New Jersey Star Ledger where she says, you have to know that the Lord of the Flies is another word for Hades and that Hades captured Persephone. It's the rape of Persephone. So if Lord of the Flies is Hades, Hades, the dark underworld was diagnosed as, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't hold water now that we're like exploring it, but I always took that in a different way. Wow. Well, and w combined with the word diagnosed, I don't know, you get a medical diagnosis, right? 
you could have like mm-hmm, a psychological mm-hmm. evaluation and be diagnosed yes, as having yes. a sound mind. I'm with you. But in terms of audible sound, I can also see diagnosing sound being like looking at a mixing board or a sound wave that's kind of decaying, rippling out. And she really kind of does that with her voice. Like if you were to look at the sound wave of this song as she draws out oh, yeah. sound, I don't know. The sine wave is what you're thinking, like the S curve. Yeah. Because the sound wave would just be like, oh, but like the sine, if you're following her vocal performance, it is like a, oh, look, an up and down, up and down. <laughs> I could do that again if you want. Ooh, um, ooh. I don't know. I guess, I don't know. The Lord of, how dare she end the album on a mystery? Mm. We are here to dissect every goddamn word. I hate ambiguous endings. Like, were we dead the whole time? I don't. I know. <laughs> Right, so hell is other people. Like, <laughs> could be hell is just you and me, baby. I also think I always hear like static and buzzing in the Lord of the Flies was diagnosed as sound, maybe because of the word flies. I don't know, but it's such a whatever it is, it's an evocative lyric, and I would count it among my favorite in the track. What's your favorites? My favorite lyrical moment? That wouldn't be my favorite lyrical moment, but I would count it among my favorites. Mm. I have to understand what the hell she's saying for it to be my favorite. I actually have several, but I might have to go with Line Me Up in Single File with All Your Grievances. Not only because of the discussion we had, but just like in terms of how I process it in my own life. It's like, all right, fine. Tell me everything you think of me. Mm-hmm. I like that line a lot. I'm going to choose Foam Can Be Dangerous with Tape Across My Mouth. That even foam, which is basically air, can kill you Mm -hmm. if you can't, if you're not speaking your truth. Yeah. The Lord of the Flies was diagnosed. excited because on the line we have Caroline Mann. She's a classicist and future librarian and she's here to tell us everything about Persephone and why Tori is not Persephone. Hi Caroline. Hi Ephraim. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know we're just living that pandemic life. TPL? Yep. <laughs> tell me so tell us your Tori story first and foremost. You're new to the Tori scene relatively so I want to hear how you discovered her. I want to hear everything. Tell me everything. I found Tori my senior year of high school. So this has been like 08, 09. And I'd kind of been aware of her existence on the internet. But then my parents were cleaning out their basement and they had Under the Pink. And I was like, this album is meant to be mine. So I took it from them. <laughs> I'm stealing. They claimed that they'd never listened to it. Yeah. And then they were like, we don't even like that. You can have it. What? So I loved it. And then I was a Tori fan ever since. And then I subsequently, last year or so, played Under the Pink for my mother, who claims that she'd never heard it and continued to not like it. You're like, actually, I stole this from you. <laughs> you bought this. <laughs> so that's great. Have you seen her live in the last, like, 12 years? I only saw Native Invader. I was at the Philly show, but I was so glad I went. I went with one of my friends from grad school, and it was so great. <laughs> So as a future librarian, like, okay, when I was a kid, I read, what was that one famous book? It's called Mythology, and it's by somebody. It's like the big mythology book that everybody reads. Edith Hamilton? Yeah, yeah, Edith Hamilton. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Edith Hamilton. 
I had to read it in high school, and then I didn't understand why it was relevant. I really didn't. It didn't resonate with me in any capacity. And then I got to college, and I had to read it again as a theater major in my script analysis class. So I'm like, why is this torturing me? And so I w- I've been resistant to mythology my whole life based on those two back-to-back experiences. But I want to know how you discovered mythology, what it means to you, and why it's important to us. Well, I think it's interesting that you bring up the Edith Hamilton, because do you remember during the Resistance book tour how Tori mentioned that she'd read that exact book? Oh, I don't recall that, but that's amazing. It happened. And I think that that's key to how she kind of plays the Demeter-Persephone myth in this song. But as for me, I'm not really a myth person. I'm actually, my PhD is in Roman history, but when we're going to school for that, you read everything. So the myths wind up being the text that you use when you're learning your ancient languages or when you're studying for your big exams or you just encounter them over and over. Wow. There'll be like a book and it'll be like, this is myth. But it's not really like that in the ancient sources. You'll get like part of the story over here in this one text. And then you'll get part of it in another text that's like slightly different. And then you'll get something that's 500 years later that tells it in a totally different way again. So when we're reading it in a book that's called mythology, we're reading a version that's had to kind of pick and choose and amalgamate all of those different sources. So then when you're trying to dive back into the original, there is no original because there's just this overlapping mosaic of variation. That makes complete sense. Like it's kind of like the Bible in that way then. Yeah, except that it never got canonized. So there is no, you can't say like, this is the Bible of, it's only like, well, in this way, it's like this. Okay. So get us into the Demeter Persephone story. What is going on here? Okay. Would it be helpful if I told the story basically? Yeah. It would be helpful if you like also had a PowerPoint presentation, (laughs) make an audio (laughs) presentation. Yes. It would be very helpful because this all gets me very lost, but I'm going to try to follow. Okay. So the Demeter Persephone story is basically the Demeter story. Persephone's sort of an accessory to her own myth. So Persephone, one day, she's like playing in a field with her friends, and she's tricked by the will of Zeus. Persephone is a young maiden, and her basic goal is to stay a maiden and to play with her friends with flowers. That's, yeah. that's the aesthetic we're going for there. That feels like my story. Zeus doesn't want I just want exactly. to stay young and beautiful right. and just hang out. That sounds like me. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. Mm-hmm. So Zeus does not like that. He's anti that goal. And he plots to get Persephone kidnapped by Hades, the god of the underworld, because he wants a wife. Hades wants a wife. Zeus wants Hades to have a wife. Hades wants a wife. Got Everyone's it. basically in league against Persephone. <laughs> sounds like me again. <laughs> Everyone's against me. Just leave me be. Yep. So uh, Hades comes up and takes Persephone down to the underworld. And Demeter, who is a goddess of the harvest, so she makes all of the crops grow. She's super upset. She's like, my daughter got taken. None of you are getting any food. So she runs around the whole world, not allowing any crops to grow and starving all humanity for a really long time. Eventually, Zeus decides that maybe it's a problem that nobody has any food. It takes a while for this to kind of sink in. You may be familiar with this through your own experiences with government. Um, But eventually, (laughs) Zeus decides that it's bad if everyone dies. 
So he has to figure out a way to convince Demeter to let the world have food again, because mm-hmm. she's basically doing a scorched earth policy here. Uh-huh. And ultimately, Hades agrees that Persephone can return. But upon her release, he tricks her into eating pomegranate seed. The pomegranate seed, if you eat any pomegranate seed in the underworld, you have to return there. So the deal winds up being that Persephone can be above ground with Demeter for three seasons a year. And then in the winter, she has to go below ground and be Hades' wife in the winter. Demeter is mostly okay with this unless the crops grow again. And everything is back to normal. Ish. Ish. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. Okay. You made that very clear. I follow it. Now, why is Tori not it? So what are your thoughts on the references in the song? So I think that Tori is not Persephone because she's Demeter. And we're not surprised that Tori's Demeter. I think this is the first time that this happens. This is the identification with Demeter that she then plays out to its fullest extent in American Doll Posse. This is where it starts. So she's saying, like, I'm not that maiden. I'm not the victim. I'm the lioness who's going to protect my young. Yeah, so she's not the victim, and I think that that's sort of a narrative that she played through. Right. Um, So she's moved on from that, and I don't know if she ever was that or if it's something that she moved on for or if it's something that, like, Beanie always was. But anyway, that's not what she was interested in. Instead, as this whole album was about her experience of losing a child, the meter also lost a child. So she's the fertility goddess who can't actually be a mother during this time period. So I think it actually winds up bookending the whole album as a story about attaining motherhood, but then not attaining it in the way that would be most ideal. Wow. That is like her story. That's her story. And it ties in really well with Liquid Diamonds, where she's supposed to be Yamaya. Wait, so you're on board with the Yamaya, Yamoya myth, that story? Totally. Great. And I think that this song is also on board with that because why is it so watery? Demeter's a fertility goddess of like crops and agriculture. There's no water in that. Mm. And I understand it's Pandora's Aquarium, but I think that the wateriness of this has to also be in dialogue with her being that goddess also. I see. I'm going to throw one at you that we didn't plan for. What is the Lord of the Flies is diagnosed as sound mean? If the Lord of the Flies is another name for Hades... Hades is diagnosed as sound. How do you take that? I have a reading of this, and I think it's a little bit far-fetched for the context that it's in, but I've got one. Tell me. Okay. There are basically two major variations on the story where Persephone actually gets taken by Hades. One of them is the one that I just told you. This is the most prominent one, the one that I already said. Um, It's the one that's in the Edith Hamilton book. It's the one that I know because she says that she's read it, that Tori's familiar with. Uh And that's the one where um, Zeus is plotting. um, Some of the goddesses are in on it. Everybody is plotting against Persephone, trying to get her raped by Hades. That one's a story that originated in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, which is a text from about 700 BCE. So that's one train. There's another train of thought. And this one we get from Ovid, who was writing around the BC 80 changeover, so around the year zero. Are we talking the same Ovid who wrote the erotic poems? Yes. I love him. Different poem, same guy. Oh, I love him. So this guy, he wrote a version where it's not that Hades was part of this whole big plot to get Persephone captured. In this version, what happens is 
he actually gets shot by one of Cupid's arrows. So he's actually not sane when he rapes Persephone. So if I take, and again, I think this is a little bit far-fetched because it requires you knowing both story variants and caring about that. But if you take sound as mentally sound, Mm -hmm. it could be that it's saying that I'm taking the version where Hades knows exactly what he's doing. He's part of this broader plot. He's trying to take people down. Mm-hmm. That reading of the myth over the one where he's like, no, I was swept away by love. What? I didn't. Uh, this is I love it. So that's what I, got. I think you're spot on. And it's funny because in the line by line section, David said the same thing. And it was it had blown my mind. Like I had always taken the Lord of the Flies was diagnosed as sound. I took that the word sound as audio as aural sound as like the sense of sound whatever it was was diagnosed as sound i don't know i i couldn't explain it and to, and then we tried to take it apart in the line by line section and david was like oh i always took that as mentally sound i'm like what you're crazy don't talk to me and then this when you said it like this i mean the two of you together have made it so clear i think you're actually correct which is blowing my mind because 22 years later to like have any different thoughts on a song like come on but yeah this is great Anything else about Pandora's Aquarium that you have to school us on? Um, I think that the connection between Pandora and Demeter is really interesting because it's sort of surprising that the song is called Pandora's Aquarium. It's sort of about Pandora, but then I would say that it's really about about Demeter. Why is it called Pandora's Aquarium? Why would you think? So I am really confused about why she's in an aquarium still. And I feel like that just has to be part of some like watery theming of the whole story. But I think that the connection between... Pandora and Demeter is that they both wind up being these really powerful agents of mass human suffering. Mm -hmm. But the important part is that they're agents. So Pandora is going around. She opens that box. She causes all human suffering. And the reason that she does it is because she was a punishment from Zeus because Prometheus stole fire from Zeus. Who else steals fire? Tori. So I think that just like how Pandora unleashed all of the ills upon the world, Demeter also basically nearly destroyed the world. Both of these stories also are connected to broader myths about why humans, A, have to suffer, B, have to work. Mm -hmm. Pandora is the reason that we don't just get to do nothing and be happy Mm. because we could have done that, but we're in trouble. And Demeter's the reason why there's agricultural seasons. It's specifically this wintering of Persephone that causes the agricultural seasons. I see. So there's a connection in productivity, suffering, and agency between Pandora and Demeter going on that I think is the reason, you know, Pandora is somebody who can take it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you've caused all human suffering, you're like, yeah, you know, I can deal with this, right? I can excavate whatever pain you're going through. This is my thing. So Mm -hmm. if you're going to do that, you're going to do that with Pandora. And then Pandora has kind of like a sister. I hear that. I always took Pandora's aquarium as being like, the word aquarium being almost kind of like playground. David mentioned that he thought of the space that the song takes place in as this sort of nowhere space of souls that have like are stuck sort of like in a purgatory space, which to me resonates really clearly with the aquarium motif that Tori's in this water, this like vast expanse of dark water with these souls that are stuck in purgatory that have gone there to just exist forever. And that is reflective of the world Pandora opened <laughs> with the turmoil, you know, and that that is all kind of 
tied in together in some way. Yeah. The aquarium never gets flushed out. It just kind of is a space Mm -hmm. where all these thought processes happen. Exactly. Like, it's just a given circumstance. We're here. What's your favorite lyrical moment in the song? I think it's the line me up in single file with all your grievances. How come? It's provocative, yet it's a, it's a command. It's saying, like, do this to me. Make me accountable for my actions. But it's also putting that addressee, your grievances, on the spot where the addressee has to be accountable for their complaints at the same time as the speaker who's commanding that they be put in line for them. I love it. I, I like the juxtaposition of those two ideas. Yeah, I love that. That didn't even occur to me. Caroline... You have schooled us today. You have taught us a lot and actually made like, you made it really clear. So I'm actually very surprised that I followed all of that. (laughs) I was nervous that I was going to get lost in the mythology, like the word mythology kind of intimidates me, but the stories themselves don't. So thank you so much for coming today and schooling us all on that. Thank you. I had a great time. You can follow Caroline Mann on Twitter at Caro underscore Mann. That's man with two N's. You can follow her on Instagram at Caroline P. Mann. P is in pomegranate, right? Absolutely. Caroline is a friend and a supporter of our show. Thank you, Caroline. It was great to have you on. And I think you, me, and David should all co-teach like a PhD level course on Tori Amos. This would be the dream. Wouldn't that be? Like there has to be one that we got to create it. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hey, Eve. I'm good. Merry Christmas, belatedly. Merry belated Christmas. Are you sad about this being our last episode? Of course I'm sad. I should have chosen to show up for a longer album. You can come back for The Beekeeper. <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait. You know I'm a beekeeper stand. I'm ready to defend The Beekeeper with my life. I know. I want to put you on the witness stand for every song. That's what it'll be called. <laughs> <laughs> we can have witness as my little, like, intro. Song. Oh, I'm, my God. I'm here for it. <laughs> this is how ideas come to people. <laughs> Why do you suppose Pandora's Aquarium is the album Closer? I'm going to leave the bulk of analysis to you and David on this one. But I, I think it's the closer for sonic reasons, most of all, probably. Like, Hotel is the only other song I could see fitting at the end, but I do prefer Pandora in this spot. I just don't know how you come out of it at the end. If you got to take Pandora and her turmoil out of the aquarium, where would you place her? She deserves a vacation. I mean, she works hard with those men. She's sick of the ocean. So let's take her to Amangiri in Utah. I'd love it. Landlocker. Yeah. Where is the ideal place to listen to this song? In the car, where no one can hear me scrape for those squeaky high notes. The vocal acrobatics that you perform? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fun. We all love to claw our way through this song, don't we? (laughs) Describe the environment created in Pandora's Aquarium in three classic American novels. Oh, I love this question. We have the tensions of Absalom, Absalom. We have the colors of Omen Sutter's luck. And we have, of course, the ocean and obsession, Moby Dick. What is one lyric in this song that you know with your entire being to be true? Boy, I think you're confused. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know me. (laughs) You don't know me. (laughs) Who do you share your grievances with the most? And would you like to apologize to them or thank them? Oh, my friend Tom, certainly. And I think I probably should apologize. Does lining up in single file to share your grievances actually make you a Karen? 
<laughs> I think you're a genius. It's <laughs> so good. I think technically it does. I mean, it's what I, I actually have to say. I think it's one of her best lyrics ever. It's an iconic line, um, and you've just absolutely ruined it. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Do you identify most with Persephone or Demeter, and why? Or do you identify with Pandora? Oh, okay. I don't think I'm that chaotic. I'll I'll say Persephone because I've been known to retreat for you know half the year in in hermit mode. Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, absolutely. What are three wisdoms you walk away from from the Choir Girl Hotel knowing? One, that even one's most closely held beliefs may be fallible. Two that the subconscious is want to express itself in unexpected ways. And three, there's a quote I love from a painter named Anselm Kiefer, who said that history is immaterial. And I think that's a great description of Tori's lyrical approach on Choir Girl. There are many kinds of histories. We have mythological history here in Pandora, obviously. We have some American history in Jackie's strength and some personal history there too. And romantic histories in Hotel. I could folk histories in Playboy Mommy. Tori takes all of these examinations of the past and she's not simply retelling them, but rather refashioning them into something new. These histories are materials with which she's molding new narratives. Wow, that's amazing. Did I tell you I had to dump my boyfriend the swimmer? Why? I mean, swimmers are hot. What, what do you do? I know, but it all went down the drain. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Tell us one thought you thought you'd never tell. Okay, I guess as I get older, I'm shocked in my, like, developing attraction to people, like, younger than I am, like, 10 years younger than I am. That's new for me. I, it was always in the other direction. And I feel as I get older that that's showing up. I'm not how, sure how I feel about that. It's, I think it's about, like, size difference, most of all, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Michael, this has been so fun. Tell people where to find you on Twitter and tell people when you'll be back. You can find me at Michael Carley on Twitter. And... Who knows when I'll, I'll be back. I, I do hope sometime before the beekeeper yeah, absolutely. that I will be there to defend her. You always have an open <laughs> invitation here. So anytime you want to come, anytime you want to talk about any song, you let us know. Thank you, Eve. This has been so, so fun. And I've so enjoyed traveling down the choir or rabbit hole this year. Do you know we met like one year and 14 days ago at the Macy Rodman concert at the Fault Line? <gasps> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Macy. Thanks for bringing us together. Uh, do you feel a little schooled by Caroline Mann? I sure do. I love learning without feeling like I'm being taught. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you just absorb it. Yeah. You know, there's some people who just really can teach. Mm-hmm, and it's fun. Let's make it fun. Let's talk about music. I think that we should have her back. You know that later in Tori's career, she goes a little heavy on the metaphor and the mythology, the mythophor. So I think we should have Caroline back. Anytime we have like mythology questions. Let's do it. Because I'm sure there's going to be a ton of mythology questions. Mm-hmm. But for now, should we listen to Yanta? I want Yanta to listen to me for once. Do you imagine this intro is kind of like the instrumental sections of Cornflake Girl, meaning they were never the same? If she did multiple takes, that this was kind of improvised? 
Yes, and the reason I believe that is because after hearing all the live tracks, it's never the same. Mm -hmm. I can imagine sitting in a lounge with you, just listening to this, playing in the background, a smoky lounge. I'm gazing at you from across the table. Tell me about your troubles, Eve. I know. I'm telling you, this is making me very emotional. Um, I, I would love to request this in like a smoky piano bar and hope that someone knows it. Mm-hmm. Your eyeliner is smudged. Play it again. <laughs> yeah, I might bring Yanta sheet music, just in case. <laughs> mentioned before the kind of watery fluid structure of this song and that there's really no bridge listening to this instrumental version i almost feel like the choruses are the equivalent of the bridge because it's such a shift Mm-hmm. and i can imagine this being one of those times where she had the chorus in her you know drawer of song mm-hmm. pieces and she wasn't sure where it was going to go or what song it was going to be dropped into something so jazzy about this just the way like the cascading notes cascading down the keys I'm fascinated by the fact that this is the song that came first for this album given the experience that inspired it. Like, Blood Roses coming first for Boys for Pele makes sense for me, but this is unexpected in a way that I really love. Yeah.
See, I told you. Crunchy minor sevenths. Mm -hmm. Crunch. <laughs> I like it crunchy. That was so crunchy. That was really amazing. I'm really glad that we did that. <laughs> um, just because it was uh, it's very emotional to hear. When you strip away the drums, when you strip away the bass, and you're just left with this like bare piano track, mm -hmm. which is so beautiful. You wonder like why you need anything else, but the fact that she has other instrumentation on top of it, it points to her as a producer, but it, this song can survive just on the piano and mean something completely different. It sure and can, and it's remarkable. And whenever we listen to these, I feel like we're peering into the soul of the song. Mm -hmm. Stripped of all its adornment. That's a great way of saying that. Yes. We saw the soul. We've seen the soul. Mm-hmm. And you can see the soul too and support Yanta at patreon.com slash Yanta. He has done them all, I believe. I think there's like a couple still that he refuses to do. He refuses to satisfy us. What? Song for Eric? Uh, yeah, that one. But definitely go to patreon.com slash Yanta and support him today. I also wanted to remind you of another website. And even though Yanta's amazing, which he absolutely is, and his sheet music is amazing, he's but one, a singular figure in the Tory transcription world. And I wanted to remind you of another website, figuretoryout.com, put together by our friend Paul Roy. It's a, an official repository of Figure Tory Out, a Yahoo group with nearly 20-year history of providing some of the best and most accurate transcriptions of Tory's official catalog, as well as live rarities, covers. You have to join as a member so that you can have access to all of the sheet music, but it's free to be a member. Figuretoryout.com. Any other websites they need to know, David? Songsoftoryamus.com, thedent.com, adentintoriesass.net. Was that it? It was not .net. It was like members.aol.com. Backslash Adita. Yeah. What's your favorite musical moment in this song? I'll go back to those shifts in the chorus um, that were really highlighted for me listening to the instrumental version. And, you know, this is a really gorgeous song. And we talk about Tori playing with genre, but she's never played with genre so much as she did on this album. And particularly on this song. It really is so jazzy. What do you think the closest she'd gotten to that before was? The instrumental? Prior to this? Section of leather? Since this or prior to prior this? Prior to. Space Dog, maybe, in terms of flirting with jazz. But it's a different kind of jazz. Mm -hmm. You love smooth jazz, though. I love jazz. You know what? I was in jazz band when Do I was Do you think Kenny G could have played on this hot track? Mm-hmm. I think she should have collabed. Yeah. He could have had a featuring. Featuring Kenny G. You know what I love musically about this song? The moments prior to that first note. How it begins. It's like you're setting the scene. Before that plunge, mm -hmm. you know, you're setting the scene. Um, and also all the piano underneath that middle part in the song where she says Pandora again at the top of the second verse, all of that, those cascading notes. I just imagine her being in her element. It reminds me of like a little precursor to Night of Hunters, the way she used to play on that tour, lost in the classical music of it, you know? It's very piano recital in a good way. Mm -hmm. You know how when she gets her head, when she like puts her head down and her chin's down to her chest and she's like concentrating? Yes. And she looks like playing. Schroeder from Peanuts. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just like in it. Absolutely. I feel like that's what's happening there. And I love all of the addition of the bass and the drum there because I feel like they're actually vibing together. Mm. And I love that moment. Yeah. I think you're right. I would also like to tip my hat to the opening of this song with that first deep bass note. And then from then on mm -hmm. out, it really does musically kind of approximate ripples, musical ripples. Mm -hmm. And with that first mm -hmm. note, even, I can imagine water dripping or even like, you know, a vessel of water, like 
we just turned on the tap and we're starting to fill up that aquarium. <laughs> yeah. Evocative. Do you know that show Supermarket Sweep? <laughs> of course. I want a chance to do that, but in Tori's vault. <laughs> uh-huh. What's to the equivalent of the turkey in Tori's vault? The big money item. Get the turkey. I want the choir girl demos. <laughs> hotel. Grab hotel. Run back to the front. <laughs> right. Exactly. Before she sees you. Check out. Check out. Who would play Pandora in the film version of From the Choir Girl Hotel? Mm, Jessica Chastain with a fishtail. Oh, my God. I was going to say Jessica Tandy. <laughs> No, you weren't. I, yes, I was. Jessica Tandy? I, wh- okay, you tell me Jessica Chastain, I'll tell you why Jessica Tandy. Are you thinking Cocoon? Are you thinking Driving <laughs> Miss Daisy? Are you thinking Batteries Not Included? What's happening? You go first. I just feel like I can picture kind of like light princessy artwork, but it's Jessica Chastain just like with her hair flowing and she has a fishtail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess this is one of the few songs that for some reason to me, the actress that I would choose kind of looks like Tori. Maybe only because she has mm-hmm. red hair, but still. When you said light princess artwork, that's exactly how I imagined her at the beginning of the song. Mm-hmm. Right before the nautical nuns come swimming by, they're all just kind of like floating in this like pool. The light princess poster could be the poster for the hot new film, Pandora's Aquarium. Agreed. The high octane thriller, Pandora's Aquarium. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking of Jessica Tandy from any specific film. I was just thinking an older, stoic white woman trapped in a room or trapped in her own mind, right? Maybe she's unable to speak and she's locked in an armchair, not necessarily like chained to an armchair, but like she can't physically move. And it's just like she's trapped in her lifetime of memories and she's old and she's you know, she's approaching death. And I don't know why I thought Jessica Tandy. I guess it could be. I mean, I like Jessica Tandy's look. It's an unconventional beauty, but a beauty nonetheless. I don't know what it's, I'm accessing with the song being about like memory and being sort of trapped and locked in somewhere. Do you think her but... wizened, watery eyes hold wisdom? Each one is like a pool or an aquarium in and of itself, and you can dive deeply into them. Well, she had such a hard gaze, but I will say another Jessica. Oh, we could do Jessica Lang. She probably could really pull that off, like mm-hmm. locked in an armchair and haunted, you know, like those haunted looks. Uh, what about Jessica Rabbit? All the Jessicas. Pandora's kind of sexy. You're right. Jazzy sexy. <gasps> We could do one of those like Bob Dylan biopics about the song where like four different actresses play. Oh my God. Yes. I love that. Or like palindromes. Totally. Mm-hmm. And Jessica Rabbit plays like the first Pandora, like the young Pandora. Yeah. Well, thank God we did that. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> you had plenty money, 1922. On the line, we have a frequent and favorite guest, Jared Good. Jared is a writer and a musicals creator. He has a new project called Midnight Musicals, which you should follow on Instagram at Midnight Musicals Pod. But we'll talk more about that later. Hi, Jared. You also love Pandora, I hear. Uh, I, I do. And hi, Eve. Thanks for having me back. 
tell us why you love Pandora. And then we're going to get into like your history with the song, which is very exciting. Oh, great. Um, well, what I like about Pandora is that, you know, it, it has that kind of cabaret flavor to it. There's something sort of theatrical about it. On this particular album, it stands out, especially because of that. And we already talked about on the Mr. Zebra episode, my love for the sort of theatrical. It's not the kind of theatrical where you have horns and things, but Mm -hmm. I think it's just because of the way that the piano features and the way that she's presenting vocally, you know, that there's something that's different and engaging. And, you know, emotionally, I I find it resonant. And because it is so theatrical, it also spoke to me in kind of a narrative way that drove it to be a centerpiece on a show that I worked on in college, but we might talk about that later. Yeah. I love that you're saying that it's theatrical, but not like with horns, that there is a drama to it, but it doesn't have to be like a big showy number, but there is a real drama to the song because of those rich, deep notes, the way she enters the song. It's like she's plunging into the abyss. Exactly. What are your thoughts on the title? What are your thoughts on why it's called Pandora's Aquarium? Well, obviously, this album is very nautical, so the aquarium makes sense from like a water perspective. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but she had sort of discussed the idea of digging into her grief in order for her to kind of deal with her grief, Mm -hmm. that it meant digging down deep and turning over stones. There's some quote about that, I believe. Many, many. Yes, yes, yes. And, and you know, I think that the imagery sort of tied to Pandora mythologically is that opening of the box, which can oftentimes be thought of as sort of like releasing all the evils, but in some ways it has this tie to the Eve Garden of Eden story, you know, where it's really more just about releasing the truths and sometimes like the scary truths and the power of knowledge and in her case kind of facing the grief and the thoughts that you thought you'd never tell. You mentioned that you placed this song in a musical that you wrote in college. Talk to us about that musical. I'm fascinated by it because it was not the official Tori Amos musical, but it was officially sanctioned by Sword and Stone. So tell us how that happened. Tell us how it came to be. Tell us about the musical and Pandora's place in the musical. I was in grad school at UNLV, and you know, ever since I discovered Tori, I was really I had an affinity for all of the more theatrical songs, which started to kind of inform narratives in my brain. And, you know, as I was exposed to more and more of her catalog, it was creating these rich worlds, as it does for most of us. And some narratives were emerging. And so then I thought when I was getting my master's, uh, my concentration was screenwriting, but I spent all of my time over with the theater department that uh, it might be a good opportunity to to finally bring this idea that had been in my brain uh, to life. And the concept is it took place in the contemporary world, and then there was like a fairy tale universe, uh, and ultimately the narratives of the two intersect. But it, it, it's about a woman who is frustrated with dating in contemporary New York and is very attached to the idea of like her Prince Charming. Meanwhile, there's this really horrible Prince Charming in the fairy tale world. Uh, who ends up coming into the contemporary world and they interact and it's this sort of like bitter irony about who this Prince Charming really is. And then there was this whole thing about the princess that Prince Charming was with in the fairy tale world and once he left and how she like discovered her own sexuality. Ooh, um, get it, girl. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> how did you figure Pandora's Aquarium into the narrative? The first 
act, we were kind of teeing up a lot of things in terms of these like ideals that people had. And once everything had kind of broken open at the end of the first act, all these people's sort of dreams and ideals were sort of shattered by the first act and the ugly truths and the sort of pain and nightmares of it. That's sort of like where we left the audience. And we've also at that point seen the different worlds sort of converge. So when we returned after the break, Pandora's Aquarium was the song that was used to kind of navigate all the pain the characters were like currently in and like this like weird uncertain space, you know, grieving their own dreams and just sort of watching like where the story had gone kind of tumultuous. So Pandora's Aquarium was our opportunity to let the, really the whole audience kind of dive down in with these characters. It was really like a nice way to bring everybody back in. Plus, I also had this like visual. We were using a scrim, and the character who was singing it, you know, it was like partly silhouetted. And then when the percussion came in for so the like, I am not asking you, to, and just watching like the scrim rise and you know, getting to see all the different sort of stories unfolding. So I love scrim work. Yes, yes, lots of wonderful lighting in that uh, <laughs> in that number. <laughs> so not only did you have this sort of Tory-sanctioned musical in college, you have an exciting new project that I want to talk about, musicals-based, since you are a musicals creator. Would you like to tell the people what you're working on? I would. So I started thinking about this even prior to the pandemic, but because of the pandemic, it made even more sense to do musical theater as podcast because we can't do live theater and gives us a chance to get out to people globally. But the project is called Midnight Musicals. It's kind of a play on midnight movies. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted a chance to be creating musical work that was a little bit edgy, a little bit underground feeling that you know subverted kind of mainstream ideas of what musicals might be. Um, and so it's a series of queer and horror and queer horror musicals that are all um, audio musicals, podcast musicals that we are going to start releasing next year. We've done a teaser trailer to announce the 2021 season. So these are all original musicals that you can play in your car while you're driving to and from wherever you go. Where can people follow you? Because these don't come out until next year. So you don't have an actual release date yet, but it's like around January, right? Yeah, it's going to be around the end of January and we'll be making a more official announcement very soon about that. For now, anyone who might be interested now, come follow us on the socials. You can find us on Instagram, Midnight Musicals Pod, on Twitter, M Musicals Pod. We also have midnightmusicalspod.com where you can sign up for a mailing list and we will be uh, updating people as more information comes available. Yes, sir. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited. Queer horror original musicals. It's like my life. Jared, so where does Pandora exist for you in your headspace? Like when you go to Pandora, what are you looking for? Like when you play Pandora, are you looking for hope? Or is it a sad song to you? Like what do you do? Although I do think there is an aspect of hope within the song, I feel more drawn to it when I am in a slightly more depressed state. It feels a bit more like the song is commiserating with me a little bit. So in that sense, I guess I do look at it as a sad song, but as a sad song that's also acknowledging like, look, we're in this space right now, but we're kind of working through it, you know? Yeah, I feel that. What's your favorite lyrical moment? 
Well, my favorite lyrical moment is she's in New York somewhere checking her account. Which Tell me why. It doesn't necessarily resonate in any kind of emotional way, but there's just something that, like, there's something so specific about it. Uh-huh. And that is weirdly the image that sticks with me when I think about this song. It's like Persephone in New York at, like, an ATM. Yeah, like, I want to talk about that because earlier during the line by line, I didn't really have any thought on it, but I've developed a thought on it, and I want to run that by you. Yeah. She's in New York somewhere checking her accounts that it pays to be the victim in some ways. Like, Tori had written me in a gun and she had had this experience about surviving and healing from it but everyone that she was interviewed by always wanted to hear the details they always wanted to get more from the story and always wanted to bring it up and that it was about her being a victim which they didn't quite understand that it was about healing right a lot of times and I wonder sure she's spending the whole song saying I'm not Persephone I'm not that victim I'm not that person that that victim is off somewhere checking her accounts like that it's fruitful in some ways to be a victim and that it's gonna get you fame or notoriety or or whatever do you see what i'm saying like maybe well, i had never really thought about it this way but that is kind of amazing well kind of like how the young ingenue in hollywood will all, it'll always pay to be the young maiden the young damsel in distress will always be an archetype and you'll always get the money and as the demeter role as the mother as the lioness here like trying to protect her young that's not who she is and she doesn't identify with that girl checking her accounts in new york who is raking it in by being the young maiden. Sure. Well, and also, I guess the idea, too, that maybe there are, depending on, like, the traumas that one has been through, working through grief is a different experience, right? And not that making money necessarily makes it any better, but more like, like you're saying, you know, I've made myself vulnerable and I am not really finding the comfort in exposing myself in this way, mm-hmm. this big way. Mm-hmm. And, and all I can really do is look at the money coming in. And it's like not necessarily a comfort, but it's just sort of like, well, this is what you get in exchange, you know? And for her to now say, like, that's not enough for me now. Like, I see that it was never probably enough. Yeah. Well, Jared, it's been a pleasure as always. You've been on our Mr. Zebra episode, Samurai, Till the Chicken, Abbey Road, and now Pandora. You have a quite an eclectic mix of favorite songs, and we love you for it. Everybody follow Jared Good at Midnight Musicals Pod on Instagram and M Musicals Pod on Twitter. Get ready for a musical adventure in your ears via podcast. Jared, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. I love talking to you. back with Barkley. Barkley is a Pandora super fan and also a friend and supporter of our show. Hi, Barkley. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Really excited to talk to you guys. Uh, we're excited to have you. Tell us your Tori story. First and foremost, how did you come to Tori's music? How did you find Tori? Well, I had older sisters, the youngest being 11 years older than me, uh-huh. and she listened to everything. And she, she enjoyed Tori as well. But my sister kind of drifted off from liking Tori, so I picked up where she left <laughs> off and was like, hold up, I'm, I'm going to get these albums. And Boys for Pele was one of the first albums I purchased 
with my own money. And I was going through a phase and that helped me with that phase. I guess you could say, you know, the rebellious teen. And I could never shock my mother with the music. I was like, what the heck's going on? She loved (laughs) Tori's music and she really loved voodoo. And I just was like, okay, wow. And she never really got confrontational with me about Tori until Choir Girl. And I couldn't understand why. So she just felt like she was going to a dark place and I didn't understand what my mom meant by that because mm-hmm. the music helped me express myself and articulate things that I couldn't and Pandora is one of those on that album and I, I must say it is my favorite Tory song. Well, I love that you were trying to shock your mom, that you were trying to push her buttons. You're like, damn it, why isn't this working? I've shaved every place where he's been, mom. Exactly. I literally did that. (laughs) Um, That's so great. So what about Pandora? Why is it drawing you close? Like, what is it about this song? Like with most Tory songs, I hear different things than what the lyrics might say explicitly. The way she pronounces things and the way she enunciates and the way she, you know, she can just twist words like spirals and coils that wind and unwind and twirl like dizzying pinwheels. And I friggin' love that because you can interpret different things on that alone with what you're hearing versus what's actually being said or the way she's pronouncing it. So that was really something that stuck with me. And this song in particular, you know, it just really hit with that whole idea of the shell, with the whole idea of diving into the experience, what she says about the song. Obviously, there's that, but then there's what's here in this very layered, beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Like, what thematically resonates with you? This idea that you shouldn't turn down an emotion and you shouldn't run away from it or feeling. You should see what's there, see what else you can uncover. Um, I've always had a hard time articulating the experience, and I've depended on these singer-songwriters, especially Tori, Uh throughout my entire life and books and stuff like that. And the levies, I guess you could say, broke this year with everything going on that I'm sure everybody is experiencing in their own multifaceted ways Uh that really finally helped me start articulating the experience. I'm glad that you say that because actually we never really take time to acknowledge that music is such an emotionally resonant thing that it's hard to put into words. Tori has even said, that's why I write songs because I don't know how to say it any other way. Yet all we do is talk about these songs and like try to pick them apart. And it's like, you're right. There is just this like emotional impact that comes that it's maybe hard to put your finger on why. So I'm glad that you said that. Has your relationship with this song changed at all in the last 20 years since you discovered it? It's only gotten deeper. I remember listening to TRL um, for Spark when uh-huh. she was on there. And you talked about that, you know, picking these songs apart. And it's great to do that in the way that you guys do that because you two are diving for these shells. You want to find all these different things about it. Are you calling me a mermaid? Perhaps a siren or a kelpie, a kelpie that pulls one into the water. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Finally, someone sees me. Thank you. Keep keep going. <laughs> uh, I just love that how she talks about her songs, and it sounds so, well, I've been called pretentious, but it sounds flighty and aloof. But I appreciate that about her because it's like, you know, these are things she's made. This is art, but uh, she refers to them as girls, as you guys have discussed. And I think that's really cool that she does that because they're almost like living beings because, you know, you change and your interpretation of them changes as you go on through the years. And, you know, I know what drove this album from hearing her talk or reading about it online. I was always too bashful to actually join one of the communities 
so I knew, but I didn't know what my mom felt and recognized in that. And that's all come to the surface in the last couple of months for me. Um, but anyways, Tori showed me through her art with these girls and I, you know, with the book that she came out with, that's the power of resistance. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I said, you're right, Tori, I'm going to take this and I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to talk about these experiences and try to articulate it. And the, and like you said, the way that you know how, the way she said, you know, mm -hmm. through music or through poetry, whether it's good or not, it doesn't matter. It's, it's trying to find your way, not only to the shells, but through the shells and through these things yeah. that you are experiencing. Um, you talked a little bit about using this song with some students of yours. Do you want to explore that a little? Yes. So the whole idea of Pandora is this poor girl who's, you know, shackled with this responsibility, the jar or box or whatever. Uh, again, women taking the blame for everything wrong with the world. So the way Tori interprets it by having it here and, you know, touching on Persephone and all this stuff. I just think it's really fascinating to help students with perspective. And I'm big on perspective. This idea of hope provides an incentive, if nothing else, for moving forward, moving onward, or moving through when all else seems lost. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Tori's conversation with this song was. The idea of creating and fostering that sense of hope requires empathy and is essential for progress. So uh, I just developed these 12 steps <laughs> to try to get to this idea of how are we going to reach catharsis? How are we going to incorporate techniques and activities and other opportunities for group engagement? And this is going to sound ridiculous, but I, I lectured and uh, taught in England, mm -hmm. um, and I took over a program as liaison for children in care. And during that time, I developed using these silly little methods, this idea of using rubbers, what you'd call erasers, to build like a house of perspectives. Like, what do you see on your side? What do you see on this side? You know, what if we move? What Describe that now on paper and then share what you see. I love that it's all perspective. You know, you're right. It is all just kind of perspective. And it never occurred to me that the Pandora myth is very similar to the Eve story, where it is these women being blamed for all of, all of the turmoil in humanity. Exactly. It never occurred to me that they're kind of the same story. So that's very interesting. Jared, who was just on, mentioned a little bit about that, but I didn't quite pick up on it. What is it about the song that sort of activates you? And if you could tie that in a little with the myth, too, if you feel there's something there. Right. So instantly, you've got the piano. The piano's back. This is the girl with the piano that we all know and love. She's gone around and done all these things, but now she's back. And it's stronger than ever. Those notes, I'm not a music major, but uh, it hits you. All of this stuff with the girl. Pandora and the myth and the jar and the box and all of these horrible things that were unleashed and that we've gone through and that we've experienced. Here is this idea of hope. What does it mean? How do we get there? How do we employ it? And you have to dive into all those other things and you have to recognize them and see them and then move on, move, keep going. And, and keep diving. And that's what she's doing here. And it's like, holy friggin' crap. It's there. It's amazing and it's wonderful. It's spiritual. It's all these things. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite lyrical moment? Everything. 
every every friggin line so for example where she talks about being still alive above the waste waste you know what 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 i love that idea of what is she actually saying here because you can interpret in different ways so you know at one point in my life i was refer you know i used the song to understand a relationship Another time, you know, when it first came out, I was, how do I understand myself? And now it's like, how do I use these things she's been teaching me all these years to come to terms? That's really interesting so, how, you, how your relationship to a song can change over time. And the idea that it's in an aquarium, you know, uh, this idea that it's something that everybody can supposedly see, you know, all angles, depending on how you place the aquarium. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like... The That's what I said. It's like a glass right? house. It's like you're on, <laughs> you're on blast. You're, like, exposed to everybody. It's amazing. I love it so much. And if I ever got to meet her, I think I would just... And I, as you can tell, I'm not one for a loss of words too much. Uh, I think I would, I would shut up full stop. That's <laughs> what I think the lines stare, but I can take... I, I feel like this song is a, kind of about her the fans as well you know there's like a, a response to the pro- like she wrote this in january of 97 following the miscarriage right. and following the tour a year-long tour and i feel like this is in response partially to being in that glass house and being put you know sort of exposed line me up in single file with all your grievances being a little bit about the meet yeah. and greets um, and stare but i can taste yeah. you're still alive below the waist i feel like how everybody's like staring into the aquarium and how people do when they meet her mm. stare full stop shut up we've all been there don't worry barkley we've all been there <laughs> um all right well you're very stylish and you're very well spoken and i'm really glad to hear your thoughts on pandora is there anything else you wanted to mention before we give your socials uh you guys are amazing brilliant i'm so glad i discovered you thanks to mr faust who turned me on to this podcast um you've been here when i needed you on the last two years since i picked you guys up so i appreciate it well that's so kind of you to say and we have at least another 10 years left in this project so we're not going anywhere so excited. Yeah. You can follow Barkley. And at some point, we have to talk Barkley about why it's spelled Berkeley, but she pronounces it Barkley Square. I thought we'd get into it today, but we, we're simply out of time. That's another reason to have you back. Follow Barkley at Barkley Squared, B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y Squared on Instagram. He's very stylish, very handsome. Thank you for being on the show, Barkley. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye. That certain night, the night we met, there was magic abroad in the air. There were angels dining at the reds, and a nightingale sang in Barclay Square. I may be right, I may be wrong, but I'm perfectly willing to Thank you.
We've made it to the live section, David. We swam our way here. I can taste you're still alive below the barricade. This is very exciting because Tori Amos has performed this song a total of 75 times throughout her career and a whopping 67 of those survive. So that is a huge percentage. But I'll bet you the rest are the best ones. (laughs) You're so right. They probably are. (laughs) She's like, let me tell you the story of how this song came to me in exact detail. Professional Widow is about, the waitress is about, I know. Let's really dish about Trent Reznor. Right. She stops playing in the middle. She's like, have we ever talked about Trent Reznor? Hang on. I'm telling a story. Guess which one of us listened to all 67 surviving performances? Yeah. No, me. Oh, okay. I'm twirling my mustache. You can't see because we're not on Zoom. I've listened to them all, David, and I really enjoyed them. I really did. There's not a bad performance among them. 67 times, David. And we're going to go through them. I'm going to present to you my top 65. Okay. In 1998, Tori Amos performed this song 30 times, which is by far the most she ever performed it on any one tour. She performed it 30 times. And here's the very first time. It took her a very long time to perform this song. She didn't perform it until August 4th in Wallingford, and the tour started in April. This was the second to last song before Hotel. How is that possible? I feel like Pandora's Aquarium closed pretty much every show that I saw on that tour. It literally did after, as soon as she like had it, she's like, ooh, this is good. God, you're right, and most of the shows I went to were in September. It closed basically every show after that, and Uh. she always had it in that closing spot. You know what that means. She was like, Pandora's a West Coast song because it's by the ocean. Yeah, Yeah, probably. It closed the album and it closed the shows. So here's August 4th in Wallingford. This is the first time she ever played it. this little bit on August 21st in Fort Lauderdale where she in classic Tory fashion defends the kids at the show. Thank you. 
Listen to this intro, David. You want to talk about this intro? Yeah, I want to hear you talk about it. This intro is among my favorite of the 98 Pandora intros. Well, that is a competitive category. Exactly. There's 29 other candidates. But this one, I think, is really the best. And she would often play around, noodle around at the beginning. But there's something really special about this one. This is September 1st in Denver. This is the first time I ever heard Pandora's Aquarium in Albuquerque on September 28th, 1998. And she performs it at the top of the encore because we have this guitar intro, which is like they're waiting for her to come on stage, you know? So Pandora doesn't have that built-in guitar intro. It always starts on piano. So this is really special. And finally, the final performance of the tour on December 3rd, 1998 in East Lansing. The ending is Soups Adorbs.
That was for me. I was at that show. She was like, Dave, Dave, David Pandora. That's not what she said. She said, David and 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 Anderson. You're right. <laughs> Panderson's Aquarium. <laughs> oh, Panderson's Aquarium. Panderson. <laughs> Panderson. <laughs> Zuh. Yeah, I love it. Should we move on to the 1999 five and a half weeks and to Dallas and back and solo tour? I'm a competitive swimmer. I'm already there. Catch up. In 1999, Tori performed this song only two times, David. This is October 6, 1999 in Portland. Again, a really unique intro. So this is the first time she did it in play this one this is october 29th 1999 in london this the famed solo show and this would be the first time she ever performs pandora solo taste for it. You know what's interesting about Pandora? Pandora is a meandering song on the record. You can kind of qualify it as meandering, even though there's a structure and there's a beat and there's rhythm. It's like there's parts of it that are meandering. The verses. The tinkling at the beginning, she's kind of just basically like playing notes, you know? So... You would think that it would be solo, that it would be more meandering than it ever is. She never really takes liberties with a song as she would with like other songs. That's interesting because I feel like Merman is similarly watery mm-hmm. and that when she plays it live, it's never the same twice. And then she kind of wanders, swims through the song and gets lost a You're little so bit. Right. Like chorus, verse, I don't even know. Whatever, who cares? He's a merman, finally you found it, peppermint land, all right. Strange. On the Strange Little Tour in 2001, Tori performed this song eight times. This is September 30th in Kissimmee, Florida. This is the first time she plays it on this tour. And this is Strange Little Tour, so everything's solo. And, of course, Pandora as well. I detect a little tubular bells, David. Let's play it. All right.
October 9th, 2001, in New York City, Tori tells this cute little story about setting her set list on fire. Cute. I'm always lighting things on fire by accident now. <laughs> and it's scary when you have a little person because she was upstairs running around and um, I lit my set list on fire. <laughs> and so the weird thing is um, I'm always trying to get near water because um, water's nice. And anyway, this little song came when I was um, living by the water, eating by the water, loving by the water. On the Strange Little Tour, Tori performed this song eight times, but on Scarlet's Walk, she also performed it eight times. That's her running to perform it eight times. Mm, can you imagine running in swim fins? It would be really hard. <laughs> I'm going to play only two because they're all really good, and the band does come back for them. But I want to play this special performance on January 30th in Vienna because it's the only time she does kind of sometimes, occasionally, very rarely, get lost in the song. Very rarely. But there's only one time in the 67 surviving bootlegs where she messes up the song. And this is it. And here's the interesting thing about this time fucking up the song because normally when she fucks something up she's like always there prepared right she's got something yeah but this one she just starts laughing here we go April 19th, 2003 in Anaheim. This is the last time she will perform this song on the Scarlet's Walk tour. She will, David, go on to perform the song two more times on the Lot of Pianos tour, but unfortunately none of those recordings survived. Oh my goodness. Anaheim? Was she playing at the pond? I believe she was. Mm, this is an aquarium. Mm. It's a pond. Pondora. Pondoras. <laughs> In 2005, on the Summer of Sin tour, you would imagine that she would play it a lot, you right? You don't know what I would imagine. I'll never tell what I imagine. How dare you assume to know? 
she had the Hammond organs. She had the Rhodes. It was a very watery vibe. It wasn't right? even a lot of pianos tour. What was she doing? So you would imagine that she would play it more, but she only played it one time on the Summer of Sin tour. And then when she played it, you would imagine it would be like eight minutes long, right? She could really stretch that song out. And she was really stretching things out that tour. Mm-hmm. This song remained intact and very, very brief for the only time she played it. This is August 10th in West Palm Beach. <laughs> expectations she defied any expectations you might have of Clyde playing Pandora on an American Doll Posse tour and cut it from the show entirely all of the shows never got played once she put it on the set list and then skipped it or she never even tried no, I don't think she ever did this would not have been a Clyde song it would have been a Tory song oh yeah of course but if not Tory who that's the game we play that's true in 2009 on the Sinful Attraction Tour, which it has actually been diagnosed as sinful and attractive, she played it 14 times. And here is one of my favorites from that entire tour. This is August 8th in Detroit. These vocal acrobatics, David, at the end. These vocal acrobatics she does. I've never asked her how. This is October 4th in Antwerp. This is the last time she's ever performed this song to date with the band. years ago that's too many bring back the band she did not perform it at all in the 2009-2010 midwinter summer tour but she did perform it twice on 2011's night of hunters she did it solo 
without the quartet. And here is her performance in Moscow on October 2nd. I love this performance. I'm doing this one solo, Night of Haunties. So this was a special request for somebody and um, It's the first time I've done it for a long, long time. So we'll see how it goes. In 2012, she did not perform it on the Gold Dust Tour whatsoever, but she did perform it seven times on the 2014-15 Unrepentant Geraldine's Tour. Would you like me to play a great performance for you? Yeah, make it the best one. Okay. For me, on this tour, she played it six times in 2014 and one time in 2015. For me, it never got better. It was always really, really good, but the, she nailed it on that very first performance. And that's kind of how I felt about the 98 tour. The very first performance was stellar. And all the other ones were really great, but that first performance was just inspired. So this is June 30th, 2014 in Cape Town. <laughs> this performance from the Native Invader tour because it is the final time she's ever played it to date but it's also played in a very different way the interesting thing David about going through like all the songs and I if you ever get a chance to do it or ever have an extra day to just do it I recommend doing it and of course all the songs are available I put all the Pandora's aquariums that survive into a Google Drive which is available to our Patreon supporters you can find them all on your own or I've compiled them for you so if you ever get a chance to do it David you really hear the mood she's in in a tour you know what I mean so when we get to Native Invader tour you can hear that she's in a very dark place you can hear that the tour maybe is a little darker So here we go. This is December 3rd, the very final show she played on the tour. And the last show she's played to date, yeah. So this is at L.A. Theater at the Ace Hotel. I'm not asking you to. With 
think we'll ever hear it again yeah i would imagine we will i agree you know i love this game what if she ended her very last show with pandora's aquarium and the final note we ever heard from tori was yeah uh which reminds me that brian nash mentioned in a text that she that's a very huge intake of air that she's never replicated live that she always has to take a double breath from the studio, that last note. Uh-huh. I don't think she's never replicated it live. She's chosen not to replicate it because she's elongated it live, Brian. She could if she wanted to. She could take all the air she wants. She's choosing to take less air. Do you think that final sound is almost like her surfacing from the depths oh, and rising beautiful. up? Oh, interesting. Especially if your interpretation of it, David, is that it was diagnosed as real. It is real. It exists. That she's coming up and then that's the revelation. It was diagnosed as sound. I had this experience. It was real. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. She's coming up to the surface. Yes. Wow. And then she breaks that wave and tosses her head back like the little mermaid. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what moment you're talking about. I would like to answer your question, though. If this were the final song on the final tour i think it's in the running this song consistently is placed at the end of a show in 2009 i believe it wasn't so much but generally it's consistently placed in the encore it's like a final song to her i guess obviously so it's definitely probably in the running for the final song of the final show whenever that will be in 35 years mm-hmm. can you imagine little old tori singing Endora's aquarium well she said in the song that this song embodies you know maiden crone and whatever so yeah she'll have to come full yes. circle with crone and David, we've made it to the end of the album. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I actually am sad now. I'm sad too. But don't worry, we'll be back very shortly with a wrap-up episode for this whole season, and we're gonna start straight into the B-sides. So the first one, what do we got, David, on the menu? I love the wrap-up, by the way. That's when people line us up in single file with all their grievances and tell us everything we got wrong. <laughs> the emails. Too many emails. What about our emails? So, yeah, we're here. The next song we're going to do is Merman. 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 Oh, well, that is, again, beautiful. We just talked about Merman. We're following it up. We're I know. Still I was going to Don't get out of the pool yet. What's been your favorite moment of the season? Okay, I'm going to answer this question like you do your favorite lyrical and musical moments by saying, like, well, my favorite moment was actually the whole season. Mm, um, it was a good season. <laughs> Especially because of the conditions under which we were 
recording it. It really did my heart good to know that I was gonna be speaking to you frequently, and even though we weren't seeing each other in person, I still felt very connected to you and to Tori. That was really sort of necessary and grounding for me, and I hope anyone out there listening felt a version of that too. You're so right, honestly. Like, it was really a guiding force through this pandemic of 2020 that we had this to do. And it really helped me, at least, focus on a project and it helped me to kind of get through the pandemic. This end never showed up, you know, like just the producing of the show. Ugh. Well, we're at the end of the album. And can we also say, cross our fingers, that there's hope that we're at the end of the pandemic? Pandemic. Let's hope so. Anyway, if you like what we do, Please follow us on all of our social media accounts. We have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Songs of Tori Amos. If you really like what we do, you can find us on patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos, where you can become a Patreon supporter today to keep us producing high quality and Tori-tainment. There's many different perks at many different levels. Find one that suits your needs. And I'm telling you, there's exciting things on the horizon next year. We always start the years off with a bang, right, David? We sure do. Keep your eyes on our horizon. Stop trying to make me look at your horizon. Don't make me look. If you want to reach out to us to be a guest on our B-side season or our Venus season, both of which will be in the next year, I think the half season of Choir Girl and the Venus season are going to fly by. Mm-hmm. We got room. Book a um, flight on our shuttle. Yeah. If you want to be a guest on the show, you must call us at 323-296-9955 and tell us what is special to you about the song. We are no longer accepting email requests. We want to hear your voice. Not really. We will accept emails as well. And if you want to email us, you can email us at songsoftoriamus at gmail.com, but only after you've reviewed us on iTunes and given us five stars. Thank you. Who's going to be the first fan on Bliss? Who's going to be the first fan in space? Oh my God, the first fan in space. It's always so like anticlimactic in a way because we're done with an album, but then we come back like the next week to talk about another song. So it's not like we're done with anything. No, the ripples come, the ripples go. Yeah, exactly. Well said, David. Thank you. I wrote it Did myself. Did you write that? Yeah. <laughs> There's hundreds of miles ahead of us on this journey, so don't be sad. We'll be back next time. I guess... Bye? I guess bye. Bye, Dora. Bye, Dora. Eve, Dora. Pan, David. I really like Pandem. Anderson. Anderson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You're the most important part of our show. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com.